You're listening to the Hockey Podcast Network. New shows every day. Find us at thehockeypodcastnetwork.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Folks, if you'd like a copy of Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, go to flankerpress.com. If you'd like a personalized copy of Tales with TR, Fights, Film, and Folklore, email me at terryryan2020 at gmail.com. And for $25 plus shipping, I'll send you out a personalized copy plus a picture. terryryan2020 at gmail.com. This weekend's UFC 262 is sure to be a can't-miss event. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, MMA is easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. There's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars and total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code THPN for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code THPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Episode 52 of Tales with TR. I'm your host, Terry Ryan. Why am I yelling? Because I'm pumped. Today, we have a fantastic guest. I know I say that all the time, but that's because I like to get fantastic guests. But we got Liam McGuire today, and he's known, well-known, at least in the hockey world, as the number one hockey historian on the planet. Um, and I met him a few years ago now at... Uh, at a golf tournament, a Boys and Girls Club golf tournament in PEI. He was there. He'd just done a, his latest book, which is um, called The Real Ogie. It's about Ogie Oglethorpe, or it's about Goldie Goldthorpe, who is from northern Ontario and basically Ogie Oldthorpe was, was, you know, was, he was the inspiration for Ogie Oldthorpe in Slapshot. If, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie Slapshot, check it out. It's one of the best sports movies ever. Not not just me saying that. Even a lot of people who don't even really follow hockey would say it. Uh, but I, I've seen a lot of hockey movies. And other than there's a little bit of nonsense in there, 
at the end, and I don't want to give anything away, but for the most part, that's very similar to what it's like to play in the minors. I can tell you that. The rink in the movie is even, um, they say the Charleston Chiefs, but it's the Johnstown Chiefs in real life, and they did the movie in Johnstown. You still, there's a statue in the movie. Again, I don't want to give any plot lines away or anything, but I'm assuming everybody I'm talking to has seen it, but if you haven't, Again, get out there. And I played in the real rink in, in, in East Coast League, uh, Johnstown. And it's, they, they like to have that kind of team, right? It's, uh, um, it's, it's interesting, to say the least, playing there. But anyway, uh, yeah, so the book's great. I read it. And Liam is such an interesting guy. He actually proposed. He's the only person ever to propose uh, at the uh, Montreal Forum. I find that insane. No one else thought of that. And, and back in the day, you know what I mean? When everybody used to do that, now it's not as much of a thing. But um, before so much social media and stuff, people would like to publicize it by going and, you know, asking their significant other in front of tens of thousands of people to get married it happened here and there I, I'm surprised I mean I've been in rinks when it's happened and not just baseball not just hockey rinks but baseball football whatever you know it was a thing I was surprised that he was the only one to ever do it in the forum but what a great story so we're we're going to hear from him um, coming up shortly and we, we got to really pretty much get right into it because uh, have I ever been busy today the last couple days this being Thursday usually if my podcast comes out Thursday morning but Liam and I have both been extremely busy. I had a bunch of uh, listener questions and uh, some topics I wanted to talk about, but you know, maybe I'll do that after. I'll try to work them into our interview because um, this isn't all I do, and I have a really busy day, but I'm really excited. And I wanted to do somewhat of a preamble. I had a few things to talk about. So that's what I'm going to try to do. We'll see how it goes. I'm going to try to work it into this interview. What I don't get, we'll talk about afterwards. Uh, thanks a lot for tuning in, and get ready. Here he comes. The man, the myth, the legend, Liam McGuire. Coming right up. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. My next guest is... A noted hockey historian, published author of four books, and celebrated radio and TV sports personality. If you're from the Ottawa area, you can often find him at the aptly named Liam McGuire's having a beer and talking hockey and chatting with patrons eager to share his ear and hear hockey stories that go back to when Cyclone Taylor ruled the ice and Lord Stanley's Cup was but a fetus. On top of being a successful restaurateur, he holds the distinction of being the only person to ever propose on ice at the storied Montreal Forum, he's the world's number one hockey trivia expert, and his latest book, The Real Ogie, tells the rollicking story of Goldie Goldthorpe, inspiration for Slapshot's Ogie Oglethorpe. He is a super sports mind, a radical restaurateur, a great guy, a fine father, a hell of a hockey fan, a hardcore historian. He's real nice and proposed on the ice. He's studied every name to ever play the game. He knows a girl named Olivia, and he's awesome at trivia. He can get pretty lippy for a bit of a hippie. He'll recite stats of guys before you were born, like Cyclone Taylor and Sprague Cleghorn. He tells tale after tale over a dog and a beer and knows each comp cup champ year by year. Ladies and gentlemen, The Stroke is a song by Billy Squire, so please welcome the legend, my buddy Liam McGuire. Here he is, finally. Finally, oh, our paths man. cross again. Liam, how are you? 
I'm great, buddy. I'm great, man. So you're you're you asked me where I am. I'm in my home in Osgood, a village about 25 miles south of Ottawa. And you're are you in Mount Pearl or where I'm are in, you? I'm in Mount Pearl. Yeah, you're okay. You're you're reading up on the back of my hockey card. Is, well, is that how you, 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 you? I knew that. Yeah, I, I have a very good friend who's from Mount Pearl. His name is Brent Walsh, and I was wondering actually. I've fallen out of touch with him the last couple of years since the pandemic here, but I was wondering if he might have been related to those fishermen friends of yours that drowned a few years ago. I, I think wonder. he might have been uh, a cousin of theirs. Hey, good, good. Thanks for reminding me. Keith Walsh, what a guy. Uh, three years ago, Keith and his son Keith and Billy Humby, uh, good, good ball yeah. hockey friends, uh, and they, they passed away off the coast of Newfoundland. I was out fishing with them the day before. You can believe Were it. Were you really? I was out. Well, they would take me out. Part of the deal, they asked me to play for their local ball hockey team. Great, great fellas. And yeah. um, they would let me, they said, you know, not that it's a paid league or anything, but they wanted to, you know, come on, Terry, come over with us. They wanted some perks. We got to go to the Canadian National Championships. So they, they said, you can come out with us whenever you want. You can catch 15 caught at a time, right? You can, so they're like, however many. So I, I was at it all the time. I'm like, what? When? A, I love codfish, but I just love the feeling of being out on the Atlantic Ocean. I don't really know what I'm doing, and they did. So yeah. they would take me out. What happened, they were leaving the next day to go to uh, – Keith had a son from many, many years ago out west, and, and they, they were excited to meet in Niagara Falls, and his son was, was going to get married, and, and a lot of this side of his family was going to meet a lot of that side of his relatives. And it was like yeah. planned to be a big celebration, but they had their nets out. So – they, yeah. they went out the day before and it was kind of recommended not to, but you know, they were, you know, th they were very, very experienced, but once in a while, mother nature does her thing. Right. So that's it. But thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. Well, I thought, I think, I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Brent was had some sort of connection, same last name. I know some, a lot of surnames are common in certain parts of the country, especially in Newfoundland, you can get some commonality, but uh, I think they were, they, they were distant relatives. And, and I remember when that happened and, and I knew you had a connection with them. I didn't know what it was, but yeah. I knew you had a connection with them. So, well, that's great. And they're uh, for for two or three months. I thought about it morbidly, but just you know, death is a part of life. And I've learned, if anything, at a much too young of an age, having roommates that passed away in their twenties. But uh, you yeah. know, I, it stays morbid for a little bit. But then I look at it as a celebration. I don't think there's any other way for me. To, to forge ahead so you know i often now yeah right there with you yeah exactly i mean what are you going to do right so listen yeah i i uh, we've been planning to do this for for a few weeks for those who don't know and um I, I i met you a few years ago and always been intrigued by the hockey knowledge and most time someone would come on here like say jody shelley last week right i kind of know his history i could do it without really having any research because i know the teams he played on and, you know, there's enough questions, but it, it's easy to do research on a hockey player because you got hockey DB. And But the thing about you is that there's so many layers and it's almost, um, I, you know, you represent some people say, well, maybe I, I should have been born in the 70s, you know, and they'll but you have this knowledge like it, it's, it's almost like you're omnipresent since 1900. And it, it's because of the people you talk about, like Cyclone Taylor, that a lot of hockey fans have completely forgotten about or if they ever knew in the first place that really were important. And 100 years from now, 
Wayne Gretzky, I mean, who knows where that's going to fall, but, you know, these people that we grew up with that are so important, I mean, I'm sure Sprague Cleghorn, I joke, but my great-great-grandfather probably would have been a big fan. So where I'm going with this, I had some great notes and questions done, and if you know anything about Newfoundland, well, me, I love to ride my bike. So anyway, I ride my bike the other day. I'm going from Mount Pearl. I, I make it up Signal Hill. I go to the little lower platform on there on my bike, and then I go back to Mount Pearl. It's a great bike ride. And yeah. I bring my backpack, and I'm on the way down, and I heard, I heard the, I heard the flap of the pages, and I looked up, and my Liam McGuire notes were going. They were still going up. It was like going down a roller coaster and holding a helium balloon and letting it go. And it was Signal Hill, so I'm like, they're in the water. They're gone. I'm not even. And I, I know Liam enough, and so I had. I usually have an order to my questions, but you know what? I just winged it this morning and last night i said i'm just going to put some together the guy's sure. interesting anyway so <laughs> i just figured you'd you'd, you'd you'd like that story that's why i texted you yesterday asking you about your restaurant i knew the answer that's i couldn't hilarious. remember terry so, is, so, is, let me ask let me ask you signal hill mm. is, is there not a, a sign there like a sign post or something that says next stop west coast of ireland there's uh, there's about on one pole at the very top, um, there's directional signs with how far, like it'll say like Vancouver, 6,433 kilometers, and it'll point towards okay. Tokyo. And then, so there's, but originally when they were first put there, it was, it was pointing at, I forget, so Marconi, I forget what Marconi's first name is, but the, the trans, first transatlantic wireless message was sent from, from Signal Hill. And it went somewhere okay. in England. I forget where. I should know. But at least I know the, the beginning of the history. I'm yeah. not quite Liam McGuire with the 20s hockey. But, you know, but anyway, that's a big part of our heritage. My great-grandfather actually had a hand in building that. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's so it, historical is one thing. But the whole area, it's got, like, the cannons that are still there. Because, you know, St. John's is one of the best, what do they call it, um, protected ba little bays, harbors in the world yeah. so you know it really without getting into every historical battle and war that's taken place it has been sure. a yeah. sought after hub to say the very least uh so it's historical I saw, I saw that sign there terry uh where it was exactly like i was in st john's in 99 and again in 2001 and um yeah. all times quick visits unfortunately two days in and out uh, one was a book tour, 2001, 1999. I was with actually Wayne Gretzky's youngest brother, Glenn, part of a crew working for Labatt's and Sportsnet. And wow. we were in town to do a gig. At, I think, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was a bar that was either partly owned by Errol Thompson at the time. Wow. No, not Errol Thompson, excuse me. That was, uh, that was in PI. Uh, but there was a, another bar anyway, somebody in Newfoundland uh, that had some NHL experience. This is late 90s, 99. You would know yeah. the place. I can't remember the name of it, but we drank there. But anyway, we went up to Signal Hill the next day. Yeah. And I saw that sign somewhere around there. So I thought I would ask you if it rang a bell or not. And, That's where. I may I have the exact location maybe off of somewhere exactly, but it was in that area, I believe, anyway. That's where it was. We, what's, what happened is in the early – we went – through the the big cod moratorium and the the unemployment peak of the 90s yeah. you know when, when i left newfoundland a lot you know, at 14 and 91 a lot was happening and the, so the, the st john's maple leafs were coming here but right so that was a great feeling if you're a sports fan but everybody was losing their jobs and hence you know now they say you know the biggest 
Second biggest Newfoundland city is Fort McMurray. Everybody started to go to Alberta. Which, yeah. We, we yeah. have a great relationship. I know, I'm not saying that in a, in a bad way, but I'm yeah. saying that, that no one was really sure about the economy. So we sunk a lot of money into tourism and everything. So since 2000, there's those places are the same. They're just a little more perfected. They're, uh, the infrastructure and everything surrounding is a little bit more modern and uh, put together, organized. Gotcha. Uh, but good memory. Now, I don't know where to start with you, so I'm going to start with your personal history. How did you get into this hockey fandom and, and culture that you immersed yourself in? Like, how did you get into it, and when did you fully immerse? Because we'll get into some questions later, but, you know, you're, you're seriously involved with the history of hockey like no one I've ever met, and something had to happen. A key had to turn. When did it happen, where, and uh, why? Yeah. Well, I grew up like um, um, most Canadian males in the 60s and 70s, infatuated with the sport, played it my whole life, wasn't good enough to uh, anywhere near your level, and, and certainly those that have gone on beyond to star in the NHL and do all sorts of things in pro hockey, I was never that good, but I had the passion for it, and uh, big Hab fan, and uh, uh, you're right, there was, a, there was a signature moment, and it happened when... In 1975, I attended an exhibition game in Ottawa. NHL teams used to hold parts of their training camps here in Ottawa, going back to the late 60s. St. Louis Blues were here quite often. The Atlanta Flames, when they came in the NHL, would come. The Montreal Canadiens would almost always play at least one, if not two, exhibition games here. And by then, I was of age where I could either go in friends' cars or maybe get a car myself, borrow one of my parents and, and uh, my parents' car, maybe drive in. That particular time, anyway, went to the game. It was between Montreal and Chicago. My favorite player of all time was Yvon Cornoyer. I wanted wow. to see if he was in the, in the lineup. And to get the lineup, they ran a little bit of a scam where you had to buy not only the program, but the, but the yearbook. And it was two dollars, you know, a two dollar bill, which we were around in those days. And <laughs> yeah. I went, wow, two bucks. Like you could buy a lot for two dollars in 1975. And uh, so me and my five friends from high school, I went to St. Pius X in Ottawa. Uh, five years, grade 13 in those days doesn't exist anymore in Ontario. But was there with my buds, bought the uh, yearbook, watched the game, went home that night. Next day in the cafeteria, me and the, my five buds for whatever reason, had a little contest just to see who it lay. I remember I read that thing cover to cover that night. And I was looking at Toll Blake won the Lady Bing in 1946 and Dickie Moore won the Art Ross in 1959 and, and, and 58. And I was going, I hardly even know these names. And these are Montreal Canadians. They won major trophies. I don't even know that. Rocket Richard, the Hart Trophy in 47. I went, okay, I heard of Rocket Richard, but my God. Call myself a half fan. I didn't even know he won the Hart Trophy in 47. So I memorized everything that night. And the next day at school, me and my five buddies, we had a little contest because they were doing the same thing. <laughs> and, and, and we sat there at the lunch hour. And for whatever reason, I happened to win this little contest when I was in grade 11, St. Pius in September 75. And I, I got an instantaneous, 100% undeserved reputation as this hockey guy. And I'm a very, very average student, very small kid, just, just a happy-go-lucky guy, loved just to skate and play hockey. I had two younger brothers, good family guy, I think, you know, good parents, regular kid. 
And all of a sudden, I got this rap in high school, in an Ottawa high school, because we got bust in there. And it was a big thing, man. And it spread like wildfire around the school. Really totally undeserved. I was a Montreal Canadian fanatic. I had knowledge of the current team, but I didn't really know much else. Other than I read that program, that yearbook, that one night. And then I got this rep. So I said, well, I got to live up to it. And, and wow. I had an insatiable desire to want to do so anyway. And then about three months later, and this, I'll finish on this one in terms of where the origin started. I'll never forget it. And I remember the kid's name. He was in my brother's class, one year below me. His name was Gord Melodic. And he had a friend visiting from the States. And, and he was, they were allowed to come into the school because, you know, they said, you bring him into your school. So he came in and, and he was walking around. He said, this is Liam McGuire. He knows everything about hockey. And, and uh, the kid said to me, wow, unbelievable. Who won the Stanley Cup in 1933? And I went, oh, geez. I don't know, but it was a it was an American team. I know it was an American team. And the kid said, Wow, I can't believe you know it was an American team. Like he was so impressed. I didn't even know who it was. Oh God, so he's just feeding feeding, feeding your brain. And now you're yeah, I can see where you're going with this. <laughs> Go ahead. Went home that night, Terry, and I memorized every Stanley Cup winner from eighteen ninety-three to that point, nineteen seventy-five, nineteen thirty-three being the New York Rangers. And I never forgot them. And I've added to that. And then everything <laughs> at that point went to DEFCON 4. And wow. it got to the point where I was, I would rip from one class to the next. With un, uh, aside from all my school books, I had the NHL guide and record book, which in those days was pocketbook size. It was thick, but it was pocketbook book size. It was easy to carry. And the Montreal Canadian yearbook which I then started to get year after year after year. And 75 was the first year I went to the forum. So I, I, I caught my first game on Saturday, May 1st, 1975, game three semifinals, Montreal-Buffalo. Habs won 3-0. Guy Lafleur's first playoff hat trick. You don't think you're falling in love. I mean, I used to run my hand along the walls of the building. I would look for spots to hide, to think I could hide from security and be there for practice the next day. Wow. I, mean, I never wanted to leave the building when I was there to watch the Habs in the 70s. And I went, I was there for 344 games. 78 of those were playoff games in 21, in 21 years, from May 175 to the final night, Monday night, March 11, 96, for that phenomenal ovation for Rocket Richard. So that team, then the building, then the NHL, then the history and the players, and it just grew from there. And I started going on radio in 81, and, uh, and, and I started making money at it. And I said, hey, I just got to keep this going. And uh, I just call myself the NHL expert of the world, and I've been riding that for 40 years, man. That is incredible. Was, in 1981, was that the Hal Anthony show? Yeah. Okay, that yeah. was part, part of my notes that I, I, I thought it was yeah. in my head. Part of the notes well, that are now in, now in the Atlantic Ocean that we talked about. Anyway. Which I think is so cool, by the way. <laughs> I know, I figured Maybe you'd like that. Maybe will end up in Ireland. I've got cousins <laughs> over there. My <laughs> father was from Dublin, so who knows? But Hal Anthony, you know, I was a Zamboni driver at the Manitick Arena. And you want to talk about, I mean, I may as well... I may as well have left my skates on full time. I was on the ice so much there. I played in so many leagues and so much hockey. It was so much fun, Terry. Wow. You know all about it, buddy, because it sounds like you've done a lot. And by the way, I, was a, I played ball hockey for 15 years as well. 
Love that sport also, and I know how good you were at it and so many teams. You're way better than I was, obviously, but but we won a lot of championships around here. And, oh, a- and for me and my buds, I'll tell you, we wear that as a badge of honor, man. When we started playing in 81 and 82, 83, we won the first championships in all the rules. Like, we beat all the towns. You don't think that was a big deal? And believe me, guys are after it. And that year, that first year, that was full contact. Yeah. Full contact ball hockey with five-minute majors for fighting. So guys are after it. I'll, I'll defy anybody to come and tell me that, that those weren't tough games because they were. I know that. And I played in them. And, and what you did, I think, is, is amazing provincially. Well, Team Canada and everything that. started to come into existence in the 90s. Like, uh, my timing for that, timing for hockey was bad when it came to the injury and the, whatever the coaches that I, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into that. But timing for ball hockey was absolutely spot on. As I, yeah. as I was looking for a sport, you know, getting out of ice hockey, and uh, it was not voluntarily. I wasn't very happy, but my ankle was bad, and I, the more I played, the more it would hurt. But then I found when I ran, it was fine. And then George yeah. Gortzos came calling, and he was, you know, big in the late 80s. He got into it, and he, he ended up being the Team Canada coach. Now he's the head of the International Ball Hockey Association. He's the head of the world. But he tells me about those days, and, I mean, it's rough enough now. I can't yeah. – I say, I say to people, I'm like, if you, if you put it in perspective, hockey, it, it's very – you see the top level and then you can go down because it's skaters, right? Like someone can have good hands, but if they can't skate, then the game is going slower and it's a slower game. But, you know, everybody for the most part can run, especially, you know, especially you're going out there to play ball hockey. You're not going to take people that can't run. So pretty much everybody out there for, as far as getting around, they're all doing it the same. So you got to come up with new moves. You got to, and there's tricks, right? You know, you know, like the corkscrew things. There's ways to be physical, but in your day, there was the actual fights, like the hockey rules, and I find that absolutely bizarre. Uh, you know, just come from where I'm coming from, and I don't know if you're aware, but that you know, your area, Ottawa, and then it took took hold in a few different places: Newfoundland, Ottawa, Ontario, or Toronto. Vancouver, there were places that in the 80s it started to really hit on a national level. So I'm not sure, but yeah, you're saying you played good ball hockey. Well, of course you would. You were, you were playing in the best league, one of them in the world at the time. Yeah, well, you know what? I hadn't looked at it that way, and I, I, I think you're, you're right. And, and uh, like when we went in and played the city, they, they had a team just when, when they were first even starting with national championships in the late 70s and late 80s. If you look, if, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's a ball hockey hall of fame. There is. I'm in it. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, are you in it? I, I mean, I got inducted two years ago. Well, there, yeah, well, there, we, there I, I was, I was in my last year in the men's whatever. Uh, and, and it, the men's draw, I guess you would say I play masters now, but, and we hosted. So I get, yeah. you know, they, they let me in a little early. I, I was 42, but I was pretty pumped because. Well, it doesn't matter. I think great you more than deserved it from what I know of what, what you did. And I, I think if you look at the list of the names that are in, you'll see two very good friends of mine, uh, Dennis LaPonce and, and Dennis Giacobbe. And they, they were, they were legends in our area in the early eighties. And then when, when, uh, when I, when we switched leagues, the first league I played in folded and then we got in the mid eighties, I started playing. And then I played a ton the next, like basically the next seven, eight years. I played with a guy named Tim Salmon who led the OHL in scoring with Kingston in 1984. Going to say, I heard that name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then he he went over to the British League and and he was in the Guinness World Book of Records for most season most points one season pro hockey. But it's yeah. basically a glorified junior B league. And he's coming <laughs> from playing playing in the in the minors over here. He never got drafted, but he was in the Islander system and the Oilers system 
uh, at, you know, and it ended up in the American Hockey League. The Oilers system, yeah. I, yeah. I, read, I read a story. There was a story in a, in a major magazine or paper a few years ago. I'm very aware. It's a, really intriguing. You know, and who cares about the points, Junior? It's right place, right time, and it's a story. Yeah, it's all about the stories, right? I mean, that's come it, on. Man. That's yeah. it. That's exactly <laughs> it. And he's got them. I'll tell you what. This guy lived for ball hockey. You know why? Because he could play with his brothers. Like, there was no other avenue that he could play with his brothers. And one of them has since passed away. So you think back to those days when we were all able to put our best friends and, and guys like the Salmons could play, and, and we'd, get, we'd get guys that, that, that I grew up with, and, and we'd play on the same team. And then you go into a competition or a league, and you win it, you never, ever, ever forget that. You'll never forget that. And, and yeah. I, I certainly haven't. And it's, it, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you, but those years for me were, were uh, phenomenal. I cherished every one of them. When you go through a season of blood, sweat, and tears with somebody, and again, I don't, I don't want to rate sports, but it's different going to play a game of golf, or even I find playing slow pitch or whatever. You know, there's games, but yeah. ball hockey, it's it's tough. No matter what league you're in, you know, because you're taking welts, you're you're yeah. sweat, you're literally blood, you're bleeding and you're sweating for your buddies. So when you get to the yeah. final, when your eyes are on the prize, that's the Stanley yeah. Cup. I don't give a fuck what league you're in, where you are, right? Uh, yeah. And it's a it's camaraderie. I love that you speak highly of ball hockey and. Um, because I, I certainly do. It's, it's one of the unexpected pleasures of my life. If you could, if you could have told me when I was 15, all of this, that I would have, I wouldn't, I, I can't even say, I, I, I don't want to say I wouldn't have cared, but I wouldn't have taken you seriously. But I ended up, it's, yeah. it's been just um, a great inspiration for me, put it that way, ball hockey and everybody, mainly George Gortzos and Tony Inito. I got to say that they got me into it. Now, listen, right for a guy that, for a guy that's had such, such great experiences in and outside of the game. Uh, I'll ask you first of all. Let's let's get beyond this. You proposed. Am I right, or did you get married? You're you're, you're the only one to. So you proposed on the ice. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was picturing when you told me that. First of all, when you told me in PEI, I had a little bit of a buzz on. I was with some of my buddies, and uh, Gordy 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 Dwyer says he says, Terry. Tier, ask ask Liam who won the cup in any year or whatever, and, that, and that's when it, I, I think I said like 1918, and I was like, "What the yeah, fuck?" Toronto Arenas. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You went right into it. You named the starting lineups, and then I was like, "Okay." So for someone that has that much fandom, and how, how did I mean? How did you? The only one surprises me because I pictured like a camera coming around, and you're like the kiss camera. That's what I pictured, and you said yeah. like in between whistles, like you mouthed it or something to her, and everybody could see you when they stood up. I didn't realize you went down to center ice, and then I t until I saw pictures, I didn't realize you were dressed up. Tell us that story. How did it come to be? Because as far as I know, it they didn't let that shit happen too much. I played no, one game in the forum. One. <clears throat> What's that? Sorry. I played one game in the forum. I'm, I'm like one you, though. I, I, I was always a Habs fan. Still am. Yeah. love the, the, the heritage, the traditions more than anything. I love, I love that I could go back with the team I followed growing up and yeah. read something from the 1940s. You know, whereas yeah. you couldn't do that if you were a Tampa Bay Lightning fan. I just love that. So I, yeah. as a fan of history, I think that's why I went with the Habs. But how did, you, how did that come to be, the proposal? Well, I, I, I think you probably got a sense earlier when I was talking about the mid seventies and I was already a hockey fanatic. And then what my first experience of going to the Montreal forum. So that, that began a, 
um, a love affair with, with that building. I already had it with the team, man, but I, I'm that type of guy, you know, like I fought like my old arenas and stuff. I still cherish their memories and things of that nature. So, so when, uh, I, I met, um, Liz in, in 93, a very whirlwind romance. And, and we, uh, I decided I was going to, um, uh, ask her to marry me. And that was just at the time. I mean, no internet in those days, no social media, no kiss cams at the arenas or nothing like that. And I was trying to think of something different. It was just at the time, Terry, when people were, were, were starting to get a little bit creative in terms of their engagements, guys or the girls or whatever combination we're starting. And I've always been a guy that's tried to do, I'm always the organizer in my group. I've always tried to do something special for the group or individuals or couples getting married and stuff. I said, for me, what am I going to do? That's outside the box. And I thought center ice Montreal form. I mean, next to my home, it's the most important building in my life. So I got the wheels in motion. I contacted Dick Irvin. Cause I had started doing radio with Dick in 83 uh-huh. and I started doing his TV show in 84. Now, I was on the Montreal Canadian radio broadcast with Dick Irvin 50 times in the 1980s. That was, and I was I on was his curious. TV show. Yeah. He, I'd go on his TV show. It used to precede hockey night in Canada in Montreal. And it was called hockey magazine. And Dick would bring me on. I'm digressing here for a second, but it's all right. Dick would bring do. me on. It was a half hour show. I'd be on for 15 minutes this is like 1985, 86, 87. He's paying me $750 for 15 minutes. I thought I was a millionaire. Yeah. And, and, and he would prepare 50 questions for me, Dick Irvin. And he would drill them at me. And I would answer about 43 or 44 of them out of the 50. And they were like nonstop, just coming like that, like machine gun. Wow. And, uh, and, and then he'd have me on the radio and we'd do the same thing. Only in radio, we had more time and we would expand on stories. We did more stories on the radio, more hardcore trivia on TV. Anyway, I had Dick as a contact. So I contacted him. And then and I also had gotten to know one of the Montreal trainers at that time. His name was John Shipman. Yeah. And Ship, he was I, there. Yeah, I, I remember he was there the first year I was there. I, I forgot all about that guy. I was going to say, Terry, yeah, you, yeah. you would have had an overlap with him. Yeah, he was, yeah. So he was there, and he had a mutual friend that was very, very good friends with mine, and we had met at a couple house parties. So I talked to Dick, and I said, he worked it around, said, got to get an inside with the team. And I said, well, I know John a little bit. So I contacted John, and Dick thought that he would he could use his influence John Shipman said, I'll take care of it, Liam, from the team side. And we're going to say, you're good to go. We know you. We know you are. Uh, you're a bit of a media guy already. We know you're, you know, whatever. He's going to take it from the team side. But you're going to need the final okay from the, from the Montreal Canadian organization themselves. And I said, okay, so what now? And they said, well, I just hired a brand new guy just on the job, Donald Beauchamp. Yeah. His first week on the job, Terry. I know him, and yeah. I, I end up contacting him. And I told him, and uh, Dick Irvin called him. John Shipman said the Canadians will, because I wanted to go in the room too. <laughs> so John Shipman was making all the arrangements. So you can believe it. Between the three of them, we set it up for Friday night, September 10th, 1993. The reason I was all dressed up is I, I wanted to surprise Liz, I wanted, I didn't want her to know everything. And so I said, look, we're going to, to a dinner with Dick Irvin. So you got to dress up. 
And and uh, she said, well, what are you wearing? Well, I'm gonna, I got to wear a tux because I have to speak. I'm going to do some hockey trivia. So she oh, bought wow, it, hook, line, wow, and sinker. Wow. And I, I took a limo. We got a limo. And we took a limo down from Ottawa and, uh, you know, drinks the whole nine yards, Ottawa to Montreal. It's not that far. And we got, we pulled right out front of the escalators. Building was completely empty. And every single light was on. It was like it was ready for a game, except nobody wow. was in it. And wow. she parked the limo, went right through the front doors, which were left open for me. They left the doors open. I just let Liam McGuire in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I just waltzed in with Liz. She doesn't know. Now she's freaking out. She goes, what's yep. happening? And, and I said, Liz, just, just come with me, please. And we go out and we walk right onto the ice. Got the door open right there and everything. Walked right out of the ice, right out to center ice. No rugs or nothing. She's in heels. I'm holding her. And we go in. I go, I go to center ice. And I get down on one knee and I said, Liz, I got a trivia question for you, okay? And the answer is yes, just so you know. Oh, beauty. <laughs> and then I proposed to her. And those pictures were taken by the limo driver. And uh, and then we went in the dressing room after, with, thanks to John Shipman, who you obviously remember. Yeah. And and he arranged for us to be able to go in. And Liz put on Patrick Raw's sweater, and she was jumping in the shower, and she didn't want to leave the shower. I go, Liz, we gotta go. And eventually, uh, we left. But uh, um, I, the, that Montreal Forum was open for NHL hockey for seventy-one years, three months, and seventeen days. And I'm the only man to propose at center ice in that time period. So I, I, to me, that means a lot. And, and, uh, cause that building meant a tremendous amount to me. I was there when they won the cup in 79. So I saw the cup one on home ice. I was at multiple parades. I, uh, and I now call so many of them very good friends of mine, including the guy I grew up at idolizing Yvonne Cornway, him and his wife, Evelyn and their children are all extremely good friends of mine. I, I am seed his golf tournament. I spoke at his golf oh tournament God. for years as, as I did Bobby Orr's and, and obviously hundreds of others, but, but to do Cornway A's and, and to meet guys like Lafleur and Bellable and Richard and Dickie Moore, like I worked the Montreal Canadian fantasy camp in Mont Tremblant in the late nineties for three mm. years in a row. Murray we had a camp there a couple times. Mm. I, I counted the Stanley cup rings in the room one night. In the room one night it was 135 Stanley Cup rings sitting in that room that night. Now, you know, you had Belleville, Richard, Henri Richard, Jean Belleville, and Yvonne Cornway. You got 31. Got 30 of them. I was going to say. <laughs> you know, he was my assistant coach. Yvonne Cornway was like. I know I think, he was. I forget like what years because I would just go up. I would, I would be mesmerized to be in Montreal. It was the same thing. Like there were, there were stories. And I, I tried to. I remember trying to explain to Damon Lenko at the time because, you know, we were a tandem. He went fifth. I went eighth. We're junior teammates. So you're, yeah. you're, you're Brian Boucher as well. Boucher went in the first round. We all came from Tri-City. He went to Philly. So we would all be talking. And I'm like, Boucher, you're somewhere in the middle. Like, you know, things are on the go in Philly. They got great fans of big time history. Langs, you're kind of just starting out. He went to Tampa, right? Like, you know, there's, yeah. he's just wheeling into camp. There's not, you know, no pressure. Not that I mind it. I don't mind the pressure that comes with being a pick in Montreal. But Montreal, I'm like, guys, like, I got Jean Beliveau behind me while the game is going on with no glass. You know, like, Ronald Corey sits right behind me. Like, I was going, it's just, it's so, it's it's surreal. It, it, I, the game I played in the forum, I had a fight in the goal. Puck hit me and bounced in the net. But I, I, I just never, I remember being like, normally after the first shift, like, you're into it. 
I, I was yeah. into it, but I, ne I never, it, it was a dreamlike state the entire time. And actually, yeah. to expand on what you were saying, my first memory of Montreal is Donald Beauchamp. He picked me up at the airport. He's a no really way. nice, yeah, really nice fellow. Wow. Picked me up, me and my dad, and I remember every. I remember him driving in, and he said, uh, "Well, we're get, we got to get back, and you're you're going to have a Stanley Cup. We we had a great year a couple of years ago, being." 92, 93. So if you got married, if you yeah. proposed in September, you must have proposed like just a few months after they won the Stanley Cup. I, I did. I did. Wow. It was, uh, I mean, they won in June and we were there in September. I actually originally was going to have Mike Keene skate out on the ice with, with the ring on a little red uh, cushion, but the Habs were doing, they were doing two days. And, and so there was no way I was going to ask them to, uh, to do it. But, but that was my original thought. And I said, no, I'll just, I'll just do it myself. But uh, uh, the, the Habs magazine did a big story on it a few years ago. I've got it at home so here at the house here somewhere. But uh, um, anyway, you know, there you have it. I mean, only guy. And, uh, and when that That's building phenomenal. closed that Monday night, my son was born. My, my, I have two children, a son and a daughter. My son was born the next week on March 18th, that Monday, Liz was expecting. I said, well, you know, it's the forums closing. Like you're not due. She was Rory. My son, Rory was born early, uh, but she was, she put on a lot of weight for him. And, and she said, well, what, you know, and I said, well, Liz, like, you know, I got to go. Like it's the forums closing. I got to go. I got to be there. If yeah. something happens, you know, just, just phone the press box and I'll boogie home. <laughs> but I, I had a press pass. I spent that whole day with Dick Irvin. I arrived in Montreal at 1030 in the morning. I went to the forum right away. I met Dick there. I followed him around for the day. He did, I don't know how many interviews. I mean, he, he even did one with Swedish TV. They had a crew there, you know, because of Mats Nasland had played there and everything. So they sent a crew and, and uh, I spent the whole day with Dick. I was in the press box for the game, and then I also had a ticket that I had bought months earlier. So when the game ended, I went into the crowd. I didn't even use the seat. I just stood with everybody else. Nobody, nobody knew what, what was going to happen. Nobody was expecting what was going to happen when the rocket came out. Nobody could have expected that outpouring of emotion. To me, it's one of the top moments in Canadian sports off the playing ice or playing field. Like say, you know, you got Henderson in 72, Sidney Crosby 2010, all the rest in between the baseball, the basketball, all the rest. But off the playing surface, Rocket Richard's ovation, March 11, 96, that Monday night at the Forum, there's nothing in Canadian history that'll ever beat that. Nothing. Um, I, and it's also the only funeral procession I, I uh, remember. Um, you remember... Remember his funeral? I went through the streets of Montreal. That absolutely. That, I I I went to his wake. I went to both his and Jean Bellevaux's wake. The same priest that married Jean Bellevaux and his wife Helen married my parents. Five, Jean and his wife got married five years earlier, almost to the day. My parents got married July twelfth, fifty eight, and Jean and his wife, I believe, were June twenty fifty three. And Father Murphy was his name. He was a priest from Quebec City. His first name was Leonard, Father Leonard Murphy. And he was a really good friend of Jean Bellevaux. When Jean was playing junior and had his driver's license in Quebec playing for the Citadels, he would go by the church and pick up Father Murphy and bring him to the Colisee. And then he wow. would drive him back after. 
And then, of course, he stayed, played senior for the Aces, right, before Montreal yeah. bought the league and turned it pro, so he had to go to the Hobbs. It's the only reason he became a Montreal Canadian. And and uh, so he he loved Father Murphy. And Jean was an altar boy as a young boy in, in Three Rivers, Victoriaville, and and uh, he loved Father Murphy. Father Murphy married my parents, too, five years you, later you... in a little village called Stoneham, north of Quebec City. So my dad used to say, that my destiny was was set when Father Murphy, who married John Bellable five years early, married <laughs> his parents. My dad used to joke about that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that building, that team, and those men were my heroes, man. Um, okay, so I'm going to get into some just random hockey questions that I'm interested in. Uh, my dad also gave me a few of these over the last couple of weeks. I said I'm going to be talking to, you know, the Liam McGuire. He knows all about you. Um, and hopefully you guys get to meet sometime. Oh, boy, yeah, I, I think that is. conversation would go on for four days. Um, yeah. I do. Just two questions here. Dad's down there now doing an interview. They're doing a local senior hockey thing. And I went down yeah. this morning at 9, and yeah. I just called down, and they're not gone yet. I was like, the boys were coming in for a half hour. I said, a half hour, you're going to get half of one question. Um, but listen. Before I even start with the specific stuff, do you retain knowledge better than the average person or do you go back and read over and over again? Like I, I often read books two and three times that I'm interested in and I find I got to take a highlighter because I'm like, how did I forget that? Like the, the Fleur book. I, how did I forget these things? I read the whole thing and I'm going through like it's the first time I read it. And I said, is it just brain power or is it the, 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 the brain cells that I've killed, it, killed along the way? Or, you know, is this what people do? Because you seem to retain a lot of knowledge. I, I, I seem um, I have an ability to, to burn in numbers if I, if I want to, to, to burn it in. You know, I mean, I, I. I don't have a photographic memory. People ask me all the time. I know I don't because I can't look at a page and, and then put it down and give you the, the whole page. But I can look at a page and take out what I think yeah. I either am going to need or I want, especially if it's a number. And, and I, I, I seem to be able to remember it. Then what I use, I use what's called the umbrella technique, Terry. You know that most kids... And I speak at a lot of schools, elementary schools, high schools, colleges, and universities. I've spoken at uh, hundreds of them over the yeah. years. And I tell, I tell kids all the time, that's my mom's phone. Sorry about that. Uh, don't worry about it. Jesus, this is laid back. Fuck. Yeah. I don't care. Um, I, I, uh, I tell people all the time that if you give me something, a name or a year or a team, or a moment or an incident or something from the National Hockey League or the Stanley Cup, that becomes the top of my umbrella. Then I, I take it and I build underneath it from there. And that's a lot, largely how I've memorized things as well over time. So for me, why does everybody play? Initially, if you, you, you either think you're good enough and then you find out later on, in most cases, you're not. Well, then the guys that are go on to the next level. Why are they playing? Yeah, they want to get a contract and everything. They want to play hockey professionally, want to make money, but they want to win the Stanley Cup. So to me, the be-all to end-all is the Stanley Cup. So I feel I needed to know who won the Cup every year. Well, that goes back to 1893. So if I don't know who won the Cup, then I'm already at a disadvantage, I feel, going out in front of a crowd of 20 people or 2,000 and claiming to be an expert. Anybody can go online now. And the phones have been a big changer. When the phones came out, 
I used to just say, give me any year, right? And someone would give me, uh, they'd say a year. I'd say, we want it. Oh, my God, how could you know that? And then I always, I used to carry a bag around with me to all my gigs. And it had the three or four key books in it that I felt were important that I could open up to people say, see, Montreal did win the Stanley Cup in 1946. It's right there. Oh, my God, I can't believe you know that. Now they go on their phone and they find it in two seconds. So now I got to say, well, listen, 1946, the Stanley Cup winner was scored by Toe Blake. Toe Blake's first team in the NHL was the Montreal Maroons. He actually won a Stanley Cup with them in 1935. He was traded to the Montreal Canadiens. His first name was Hector. He got named Toe because his nieces and nephews couldn't say Hector. They would say Hector. So it got shortened to Toe, and that's how he got the nickname. And he won the Cup in Montreal in 44 and 46. And then he badly injured his egg leg in 1948 in a hit by Bill Jusda, the New York Rangers, and he had to retire from hockey and he got into coaching. So where did all that come from? It came from somebody asking me who won the cup in 46, top of the umbrella. And then I go from there. And boy, obviously, I can talk like your dad because I can take 46 and told Blake and just extrapolate, right? He coached 13 years. He played 13 years. He won three cups as a player, eight as a coach, 11 in total. So you boom, boom, boom. He played on the punchline. Well, if he played on the punchline, tell me about the punchline. Well, that's Elmer Locke and Rocket Richard. There's only been three lines in NHL history to finish one, two, three, and scoring. No way. The, the Krupp line in 1939, the punch line in 1945, and the production line in 1950 with Detroit. How Lindsay and Avery. I was going to production Richard line, I would have guessed. The first one, I, di- I didn't know what you were. The, I would have guessed the production line would have been one of my guesses. And my next guess would have been would have been much more recent. Uh, one of the bunch doesn't really matter. 1939, who was that? That was the, the Kraut line. Okay. Smith, Woody Dumart and Bobby Bauer. And and you see, again, I'm still on that thread from 46. See what yeah. I mean? See. So yeah. so that's that's what I do when I do my shows now is, is to give the rest of the story. Because it can't just be – I try and tell people. People are still saying, oh, like, how do, you, how do you remember who won the cup every year? It's not that big a deal. It's strictly memory work. And now I've been doing it all these years. So, you know, whatever year is whatever year, I file it away. It's there for all time. I'll take it to my grave. But now you give me something else. I'll say, well, what about the Richard Riot? Boom, 1955, March 17th, Saturday night. Score was 4-1. Game was canceled. Incident with Hal Laco, March 13th. Boom. Well, what about something more recent? What about uh, – uh, the offside goal, 1980, Brent Sutter, Stanley Cup final against the Flyers. Yeah, 100%. Boom. Then you go with the Sutters. Then you bring in the brothers. Then you get, well, they're the they're the hot, they're the the most brothers to ever play in NHL history. Well, whose record did they break? Well, they broke the Bouchers. There was four Bouchers that played in the 1920s, including Billy Boucher, who scored the first ever goal in the history of the Montreal Forum and I no. got engaged in Santa Rice there. Oh so my I god, you're blowing my mind. Did I take mushrooms this morning? You're blowing my mind. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, um, so we, this is what we're going to. We're just going to tiptoe around the history of hockey and uh, you told me one stat about Dave Keon that I could not believe. Uh, yeah, so did, last can you, his fight. I, tell us about that because uh, people, I don't a lot of people I've, I've brought that up to since, which is only a couple of years ago, but they were like, what? He gets in a fight, <laughs> his first fight ever, right? In his last yeah. game. And how many did he play? His last game ever as a Toronto Maple Leaf. It's unfreaking believable. How did Game's this come about? 
Well, you know what? Uh, I actually asked him that story myself. I interviewed him in 2016. I had him on my radio show, the last one that I that I hosted. I hosted a bunch of radio over the years, or our co-hosted in Ottawa here, a number of different shows. I couldn't get Dave forever. Yeah, Dave was a recluse, right? He went off the grid. That battle with, you think, Terry, how bad that had to be. The acrimony between him and Harold Ballard and Jim Gregory. Ballard dies in 91. Maple Leaf Gardens closes in 99, eight years later, and Dave Keon still did not go back. Wow. When they closed Maple Leaf Gardens. So he wouldn't he wouldn't set foot in Toronto with a maple leaf on his chest if you paid him thousands of dollars. He had and now after they did the the reunions of some of the sixty Stanley Cup teams, he started coming back. So here's a guy, comes out a junior, wins a Calder Trophy, rookie of the year in sixty one, wins a Lady Bing in sixty two. Becomes if there had been a Conn Smythe Trophy before '65, he would have won it at least once, if not twice. Becomes one of the best centers in the NHL, and in an era where <laughs> guys are dropping the gloves before they even take the opening face off, and he doesn't get in one single solitary fight. He goes through his entire career with the Toronto Maple Leafs from 1960 to 1974 until his last regular season game against the Boston Bruins. And he gets in a skirmish. He told me on the radio, he says, Leo, I swear to God, I just don't know what came over me, but I was so pissed off at Greg Shepard that I dropped my gloves and I tried to punch him in the head. (laughs) That's the first time in 14 years that he throws a shot and he gets a fighting major in his last game ever as a Toronto Maple Leaf. I think it's one of the greatest anecdotes. Of course, he went in the WHA. He lit it up there uh, for for New England. And and he ended up uh, playing WHA. Your dad would know, of course, all that. Oh, yeah. uh, The history of Dave Keon is not lost on me. Yeah, uh, nor, you just mentioned going. you just mentioned uh, seeing Lafleur get three. It yeah. was against Buffalo. Gilbert Perot would have been there. Yes, he was. Yeah, Dad says with his own eyes he played junior against them for the junior Canadians. Yeah. I think it was. He said it yeah. was the best player that he'd ever actually been out there and played against. He's like, I know. I'm not saying he was better than Lafleur. I think he's. I didn't play against yeah. those. The one, the guys that he played against, he was absolutely mesmerized uh, uh, with Gilbert Perot. Now, speaking of fights. So you tell a story about Eddie Shore getting in five fights one game. And, and you know, yeah. everybody talks about, you know, old school hockey and all these fights. But when I look back, there's not many videos that you can see or, and there's not penalty minutes. So I'm going like, how did someone get 13 fights that year and they have 22 penalty minutes? I, I don't understand. That might be an exaggeration, but there's not a lot. And I hear these. No. And sure enough, Eddie Shore gets in five fights in one game. And at the end of the year, he had like 42 penalty minutes. I don't understand. We're, we're, yeah. we're, I know the, the penalties have changed. In fact, I'm going to get to, you know, in the in the 20s when penalty shots come in, they just stood up and took a slap shot for I, I, I yeah, had no idea about any of this stuff. So then I started wondering were they even calling them fights, or was you know would they just say it's two minutes for roughing? I, I don't know how all these guys had all these fights, and the penalty minutes are way down. Yeah, I mean. Um... 
you're hitting the nail on the head. You kind of covered it off there. So first of the game, the game was called a hundred percent differently. And what you had to do to get a fighting major in, in, in that time period was almost uh, attempted murder okay. I mean, for, for lack of a better term. You could punch guys in the head. You could drop gloves and actually go at it and, and not get fighting majors. I'm going to give you two examples of that. Well, one of the best and one that goes in the 1960s is Brian Conacher. Okay. He's part of the Conacher clan. Yeah. There was, there was Charlie Lionel and Roy, three brothers that played in the twenties and thirties and into the forties. They all had sons that played and Brian was one of the sons. He was Charlie's son. He played for the Toronto Maple Leafs. He was on the last Leaf team to win the cup in 1967. So the next year, 67, 68, he's a Leaf. He's playing against the Boston Bruins, and he get, he high sticks Bobby Orr. So the, the Bruins all say to this day it was deliberate. Conacher said to me, Liam, do you think I was trying to stick Bobby Orr, knowing what that team was going to do? Not, not a chance in hell. But they took it. It was deliberate. They cleared the benches, and they brawled Brian. He was in four separate fights. That is 1,000% confirmed. Yeah. You look at the game summaries from that game, and he's only listed as having one fighting major and okay. his conduct in a game is conduct. He okay. was in four separate fights. It's like the night Forby Kennedy, his final game ever in the NHL in 69, the playoffs, game two quarterfinals against Boston. He fought repeatedly in that altercation. He fought Jerry Cheevers. He fought Pipeface McKenzie three separate times. He was fighting the fans, for God's sake. Yeah, know, okay. He got 38 minutes in penalties. He should have got 68. But what happened with Eddie Shore in that unbelievable night <laughs> yeah, against I mean, the is... Montreal Maroons is they set out on a mission. This is all well documented. Mm -hmm. But I had a guy come on LinkedIn a few years ago when I wrote the story, and he looked back and he said, there, there's no record of five separate fighting majors in the game. And I said, did you read the write-up on the game? Did you read about what happened with Dave Troche? Did you read about what happened with Hooley Smith? Did you read about what happened with these guys? That Shore got into it with these guys? I mean, there was so much blood on the ice, they had to stop the game and bring out extra scrapers to scrape the blood off the ice. There's no Zambonis in those days. Wow, they wow. stopped the game to scrape the blood off the ice. The Montreal Maroons played that game that night with one intent only, and that was to put Eddie Shore in the hospital. That's what they set out to do, and they were successful. They sent him to the hospital. He took two of them with him. The Dave Troche guy I talked about, Eddie Shore collapsed his lung, okay? This guy was diagnosed in the hospital with a collapsed lung. This isn't two guys having a dance in 2021. Believe me, Terry. Yeah. And okay. I know you've been in a thousand battles, buddy. And I know guys like Gordy Dwyer and everybody else. And you go to the Maritimers, yeah. so many tough guys. But I'm telling you, the late 1920s, you mentioned Sprague Cleghorn. When I interviewed King Clancy in 1983, and I mentioned Sprague Cleghorn to him. King Clancy's eyes, main years were what? King Clancy started in 1920, and he played until about 1936-37. Okay. So King Clancy he was the first was... defenseman to ever score a goal on a penalty shot. It's funny you mentioned that. In fact, his last goal ever in the NHL was scored on a penalty shot. But King Clancy played against 
Eddie Shore and played against Sprague Leghorn. And when I asked him about Sprague Leghorn, his eyes got big as saucers. And, and he just looked at me incredulous. How do you know that name? How do you know that name? And I said, well, I've read up on him, Mr. Clancy, and I understand he was, he was pretty crazy. He was, you know, he was pretty violent. And he just shook his head at me. He said, son, you have no idea. That man was a criminal that just used hockey as a pastime. Yeah. And, and I mean, these guys. And he was pretty Fred good, Clayhorn too, wasn't he? Wasn't Clegghorn wasn't Clegghorn pretty good? Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, last year. he was. Okay. Him, him and his brother, Odie. They were, they were good players, man. They, they, uh, Odie Clegghorn, as a coach, is credited as being the first coach to change a line on the fly. No, no way. Line, no players wouldn't change on the fly in those days. You'd wait for a whistle and then make a line change. Like in minor hockey today, you know, I mean. I've always know, found it, it, that fascinating. I, in, in, in other people I talk to, Liam, sometimes from other sports, and I, I just think it's normal. I never really gave it much attention, but uh, I played junior C in Tri-Cities, and I love it because people's perspective, they come to check out this this new sport, you know, new. Yeah. <laughs> now, but when I was there, it was um, 30 years ago. But, you know, I still go back, and I went back a couple years ago. And fans there have these great perspectives and takes, and, and, and a lot of them are Americans that hockey is either new or, you know, it's not traditionally in their family. And they'll comment yeah. on that, and they'll go like, wow, you know, like I play football, and then I play baseball. He's like, you guys can just run out. You can just skate out whenever you want. As long as someone comes in, it could be a defenseman, and a forward can jump out. You can do whatever you want. And I said, yeah, yeah I wonder who came up with that. And that's who came up with it. Sprague Leghorn's brother. He, he was he, he was a guy who, who came up with it. Odie Cleghorn. He was coaching a team in the NHL called the Pittsburgh Pirates. They were an expansion team in the NHL. And and uh, Odie Cleghorn was their coach. And he was the first guy to say, why are we waiting? Why don't we do this? And then it was adopted immediately because everyone went, yeah, duh. You know, we should be able to do that. And that's when changing on the fly became commonplace. His brother was Sprague. It was an absolute psycho. psycho. And Eddie Shore, that game, if you if people read up on it, and they read up on the whole game, like uh, um, uh, Charles Coleman and um, I think the Jim Matheson, I'm trying to think the sports reporters of the day in the Montreal papers that in 29, they wrote on it. Um, mandate, send order to the hospital, blood on the ice, game delayed. They talked about all the incidents. Uh, um, Babe Siebert, like, to me, you could make the case that he was overall the greatest left winger. Like, I know Bobby Hull. Everybody's right to say Bobby Hull for sure, and I do too. And Bobby was tough as nails, and he would fight. But people just don't know. They yeah. don't know about these guys. And these these men... Were, were six foot, 180, 190, 200 pounds in the late 20s. They were giants, giants of the day. And Eddie Shore was an absolute, uh, to me, Eddie Shore, when people talk about the greatest defenseman of all time and they don't name him in the top three, I just say, sorry. Like, don't say all time. See, you want to say in the era that you saw, you want to you want to say Nick Lidstrom? He couldn't carry Eddie Shore's jock. Okay, Eddie Shore won four Hart trophies. Terry, four. Wow. He won more than Bobby Orr. And oh, sorry, it was just a six-team league. No, it was a ten-team league. There were two divisions, and he beat the shit out of everybody that played. Like nobody wanted to come near him. He almost killed Ace Bailey. <clears throat> I mean, that night, three guys went to hospital that night. Two of the guys that tried to put him out and Shore himself. And the next home game that the Bruins played, their owner, Charles Adam. Imagine this today. 
He called short of center ice. Eddie missed one game with all that. There's pictures of him in the hospital. His, his, his eye is half shut. It's all black. He's a mess in his face. He's got all sorts of abrasions on him. I mean, five guys took a run at him all night. Five hard-scrabbled wow. men. And he went at every one of them. And, and they went at it with sticks and with fists all night. And the next home game that he dressed, Mr. Adams, the owner of the Bruins, called Eddie to center ice in front of the hometown crowd and gave him a check for 100 bucks for every stitch that he had put in his face wow. from that fight. That is old-time hockey. That's old-time hockey, man. You think you'd see something like that today? I try and explain to people, especially the left-wing liberals on Twitter who've never been in a schoolyard scrap in their life. Never. They would curl into a little ball, you know, with their thumb in their mouth, crying for their mommy if they saw some of the stuff that went on. I'll tell you, um, Sprague Claghorn, 1950 NHL awards. This is just a few years before he died. I believe he died in 56. And he, he got interviewed by Sports Illustrated. And they said, Sprague, we'd like to talk to you about your playing days. Yeah? What do you want to know, son? Well, I was just wondering, like, how many fights do you think you were in? And, and he tilted his head back and he rubbed his chin and he said, well, do you mean just stretcher cases? Wow. <laughs> that was his answer. Different context back then. He wasn't doing it to get a laugh. Like, he wanted to find out, well, give me an idea here what you're talking about. You're talking about the ones like, this is a man who had the police. Yeah, a fight or a fight. A him. fight. You, you mean a fight or a fight? <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no he was he was nuts. And listen, Shore was nuts. So, I've always been, hey, that's why I've always wondered. Looking at, I mean, I had 256 penalty minutes one year, and I look back, take the Broad Street Bullies even, not going back that far, and I'm like, geez, everybody's on the ice fighting. And then I looked at them like, how did these guys not break the record? Like, people go, well, you know, someone, I just had Jody Shelley on. He owns the record in Columbus, in Halifax. That's a yeah. bad example. They're two newer teams. But you know what I mean? It happens often. You look yeah, at a yeah. team that's been around forever, and I'm like, how did those guys not break it? <laughs> it just wasn't being called. I want to go way back. I want to go way back because i know cyclone taylor only because of ron mcclain to be honest with you and he told me the story i don't know anybody else that played at the time and i find now i used to be included in this it, within recent years they talk about making these rule changes when the red line came out i'm like oh we got to keep the red line in i don't know why just because i was like in my mind um I wasn't as educated on it. I mean, the internet and, and, and universities has come since. But I used, to, I used to go like, you know what? We don't need to change any rules and the records are going to be tarnished. But the rules have always been changed. I mean, yeah. you always, right? And you just, I, in my, so now I look at it as relative dominance, right? Um, you, hockey fans look at it that way. But I mean, not like baseball, like Babe Ruth. The rules are the same, but, but even there, like he's still this big hero. But I mean, the balls were different. The side, the pitchers were definitely different. There was, there was certainly not, it wasn't much of a universal game, just like hockey. Um, you know, the knuckleball hadn't come in. There's all kinds of things I could point. And people say baseball hasn't changed. I say it has changed, hasn't changed as much with the rules as the other sports. But the rover come in at some point. I know they got rid of the rover, and I know at one point, you can only pass it backwards. Now, meanwhile, right. there's these great players like Cyclone Taylor that are coming along that I'm sure would have thrived with these rules, but they weren't there. So when did the Rover 
was it as easy as there was five players and a rover and they took the rover out or was it a different alignment altogether and who were the best players when there was a rover hockey when it when it started when they started forming amateur leagues in the mid 1890s it was all seven man hockey just okay. so you, you you played with with a goaltender and you played with six skaters and the goaltender and- wait before i go further was the goalie i think not allowed to go down he was not allowed to go down. Not allowed to go. I've that is bizarre to me, but I mean, I guess that the, the sport is a fetus. Okay, so I'm sorry to cut you off, but I had to no, get that no, clear. Hey, I read that and I'm like, is that real? The goalies couldn't go down. What are you talking about? But they couldn't. Anyway, go ahead. Look, they said when they, when the NHL started, goaltenders had to serve their own penalties. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> that sounds bizarre. When did, and when would this have been? Cyclone Taylor was in the tens, right? Yeah, Cyclone Taylor was in the tens. He was obviously he's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the greatest of all time that has kind of been lost in transition when the names get mentioned. Most people go back maybe as far as a Howie Morenz, and then you mm-hmm. kind of, it's like there's a drop-off and nobody goes any further. You go back another 10 years, and you're in the Joe Malones and of his prime, yeah. and you're catching sort of the tail end of, of Cyclone Taylor. Uh, Cyclone Taylor was the highest-paid player highest paid man in sports in 1910 in renfrew in the town of renfrew it's a town there was a team called the creamery kings the league that preceded the nhl was a league called the nha did they the play National for the cup Hockey did they play for the stanley cup they did yeah. okay because the cup came they, in the late uh, yeah i got they you. competed but you had they you had to win your league and then you had to compete against other leagues. Like the winner, even the first nine so it was like the years, Allen Cup. Like the Allen Cup. The okay. first nine years of the NHL, from 1917 to 1926, you won the NHL. You didn't win the Stanley Cup. You then oh. had to compete against other leagues. Ah, so teams win, outside the of Cup. the NHL won it. Did they, or did the NHL win it every time? There were 14 different leagues that competed for the Stanley Cup from 1893, well, 1895 to 1926. 14 different leagues, of which the NHL were one. The NHL took over exclusivity of the Stanley Cup under the guidance and and the accordance of the trustees in 1926. They became the exclusive holder of the Stanley Cup, largely because the Western leagues folded. The PCHL, the yeah. WHL, Pacific Coast Hockey League, Western Hockey League, over 1924, 25, 26, they folded. So I hear about and, the Vancouver Millionaires. Is that what league yeah. they would have been in? The Vancouver Millionaires were in the PCHA, PCHL. They started PCHA, became the PCHL. They won the Stanley Cup in 1915. The first American team to win the Stanley Cup, ironically, was from Seattle, who are now a new team in the NHL starting this fall. The Seattle Metropolitans, the first American team to win the Stanley Cup, were in 1917. You had um, um, the Victoria Cougars won the Stanley Cup in 1925. None of those teams played in the NHL. They won their respective leagues. They all played against each other, and, and that's how the Stanley Cup was awarded in those days. When the Ottawa Senators won the Stanley Cup in 1923, they won representing the NHL, and they beat the Edmonton Eskimos. Yes, the same name as the football team in wow. 1923. So you had that all the time. 
Like the Montreal Canadiens won their second Stanley Cup in 1924. They had to beat a team from Calgary and then a team from from uh, from British Columbia to, to win the Stanley Cup. They had to play two more series after they won the NHL. Now, by <laughs> that time, by that time, though, I'm guessing I should know the answer to this. But you just look at honestly, I've seen all the, the, the history of hockey. I try to keep myself up on it, but it's lost on me what year that they stopped with the nonsense that you couldn't pass it forward. I shouldn't yeah. say nonsense. They knew a game. You, you adapt to whatever game. You know, it was more like football, I guess. You can only right. pass it backwards. So when did that end? 1929-30. Jesus, was that's it? way later than I thought. So these guys way are later. playing under, I mean, Cyclone Taylor's like, you just got to feel like he was on the bubble. Or it's the same thing with Joe Malone. Their, their, their coming out party was like just waiting for that rule to be changed. And I guess they, they grew old and then it changed with the Sprague Claghorn group. It, it did. The tail end of Sprague's career, actually. He was pretty much done by the time that, that rule must have really opened it up. Well, the scoring leaders in the NHL went from um, 50, low 50 point totals to Cooney Wheeland, who went right up to 73 points. And then you had Herbie Kane 10 years later with 84 points. And then in came Gordie Howe and, and away you went. But How do you, okay, before we... came you could pass it forward and they, they, they augmented some of the rules. But you couldn't pass it forward in the in as you crossed uh, in in the in those there was no red line right there was like you had the two blue lines and you could only pass it forward up to the blue line and then you'd go over the blue line you could only pass it forward up to the next blue line then you go in the offensive zone you could only pass it forward there so it was really regimented in terms of what you could do which is typically why your best players, and as you mentioned, the Rovers were typically your best players, like a Cyclone Taylor, like a Frank McGee, who preceded Cyclone Taylor. Frank McGee, I heard that name. He's got the all-time Stanley Cup record with 14 goals in one game. But what those guys would do, Terry, is they would take it and carry it themselves. So they would carry it through all the zones into the offensive zone where you then could pass it around. Okay. you could find a line mate, a winger at that point, at that time, and you could pass it around. But so, you, so now, with the D as well, the Scott Niedermeyer, I remember in my era being real, like, I, I, I couldn't believe that he would just go down like a knife through butter as a defenseman and take it in. He reminded me, not that there was anybody in that, coffee, right, watching, or I'm trying to think. So would D do that as well? Or is that why guys like Eddie Shore much later, Doug Harvey, like were guys like that yeah. revolutionizing it as late as that? Or, you know, who whose job was that to lug it in? Would, would it have been the, the yeah. Connor McDavid? It would it would be your Connor McDavid. It would be your rover. It would be Cyclone Taylor. Rover, yeah, okay, it was the rover. Uh, Cyclone Taylor, Frank McGee, uh, these guys that played as a rover. Now, keep in mind, um, the Eastern hockey, so the all the leagues in the East – up to and including the National Hockey Association, the NHA, which was a forerunner of the NHL, they went to six-man hockey in, in around 1910, 1911. But out west, it was seven-man hockey. So when those teams would meet for the Stanley Cup, they would alternate game to game. So you would have one game, what they called Eastern Rules, and the next game I would see. be Western rules where you could still play with like the American rollers. league playing the national league in baseball. Exactly. With a designated hitter or not. You so know, 
would have to hit. So now, were the rinks the same size with seven people out there? No. No, the rinks were all uh, boarded sizes. You would Anything. get everything under the sun. I mean, you didn't have artificial ice until 1912 either. You were playing all on man-made ice. And even then, you got artificial ice in Vancouver and then Toronto, then eventually Montreal. It took, it took four or five years before you even had three rinks with artificial ice in Canada. So that's why a lot of the early days before the pro leagues started. See, keep in mind. The Stanley Cup's not even the real name of the trophy, right? That's a nickname. It, the, this, the, the, the original trophy, which was, which was made in England by our governor general, had it made in England to give out to the top amateur team in Canada. If you look on the top of the Stanley Cup, the original bowl, it says Dominion Challenge Trophy. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. It was because we were a Dominion. Wow. So it was Dominion Challenge Trophy. But his name was... Uh, Frederick Arthur. He was Sir Frederick Arthur. He was the Earl of Derby, Lord Stanley. So after about five or six years of awarding the trophy, the newspaper reporters of the day started nicknaming it the Stanley Cup. So that's how it became known as the Stanley Cup. Interesting. But in those days, seven-man hockey. Now, the first, now they didn't call them defensemen in those days. They called them point and cover point. And the best cover point man player in the early 1900s was Laster Patrick. Ah. He was the best. He was the first. He is, he is regarded as the first defenseman to ever score a goal. And in fact, in 1906, he scored a Stanley Cup winning goal for the Montreal Wanderers. They were Stanley Cup winners. They won a bunch of cups in the early 1900s, right up until 1910. And Lester Patrick was their, was their main guy. Then Lester and Frank, his brother, went out west, and they started the Pacific Coast Hockey League, and they started challenging for the Stanley Cup. But they went back to seven-man hockey. They wanted to keep it. But they were also the first one to put numbers on jerseys, and, and uh, they, they, they invented most of the If you didn't have rules. the number, how would you know who scored it? It'd just be, you'd just well, go over and say the name? Like, they, like yeah, as an extension of that. Seven players on a team. Because there was only two officials, right? Only two officials. There was two officials. So guys are out there with no numbers. Now, not only that, well, you just explained, yes, the rover takes it up, but, pass it, but, but it, within a game, I'm assuming, it's hard enough now, as we know, offsides. I mean, there's cameras now, and no one still knows. Goals are waiting to get called back for 15 minutes. I mean, I thought that would solve everything. The camera it didn't really solve much. So well, how, the linesman must be just driven nuts. Like, if a pass can't go forward or back or whatever at any zone possible – You've got to look, and there's no. It's not like football. Where you get the replay, and you got the line going across. No. How did they even know? There must be like so much unnecessary conflict, you know. With I just know. The, well, before there were whistles, the officials would skate with a bell, and what? There were no even in the late 1800s, Terry. There were no nets. They, they skated with posts, a bell. Two posts in the ice, and the goal judge would be a guy would stand in behind on the ice surface. He'd wear a little bowler hat and a big fur coat, and he had a flag. And if he thought the goal was in, he would lift his arm, and that would signal a goal. And Incredible. Then, I know there weren't no guys one. getting paid off under the table. Wave your well, fucking sure, flag. Sure, it probably happened all the time. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there was a fisherman. You're going to love this story. There was a fisherman who said, why don't you use a fishing net and tie it to the, to the two posts, and it would you... collect the pucks. And that was the start of a net. And you know who that man was? 
Oh, it was God. Foster I... Hewitt's father. What? How <laughs> weird, where and when? That is incredible. So was he saying that as a fisherman or as a hockey fan? That's how Foster got into it. I mean, he this is saying it as a fisherman. And wow. he said, why don't and you use a, one of the nets to stop the pucks? And you'd know that the puck was in the net. Of all the things to last forever, like you, you would think of all the rules that come in and out and get changed and the players and the, the wood sticks to the composite, that would last. The twine on the net. What? That, that is incredible. Uh, goal <laughs> assist fight. Gordie Howe hat trick. I got Harry Cameron. I got a note made of it. Is, is this or is it Harry Cameron? Yeah. The first time, when was this? When did it happen? Yeah, well, 1919, 1819, he was playing. So assists, were goals the same then? A goal uh, and an assist are both worth a point? Yeah. If you're scoring? Okay. Yeah. See, the first year in the NHL, they did not record assists. Okay. I knew, okay. they I think you told recording. me that when we were sitting down. So I was, I was curious to know. I thought that lasted a long time. So I thought it must be a misprint. Goal assist fight. He had an assist in 1919. But anyway, go ahead. Apparently he did. He, he, he did. This is, this is where um, – this is something that came out years later when the term started to pick up some notoriety as Gordy was – his time sort of on earth was winding down and people were doing – doing a lot of things about the Gordy Howe hat trick and talking about it historically and everything. And, and people went back and checked the game summaries because there was no real mention of it being Harry Cameron through the seventies or eighties. It was into the 1990s before somebody went back and looked it up statistically and found that he had a game and they went through the summaries from 17, 18. They, of course they could eliminate that season. There were no assists recorded. So they started in 18, 19 and they found that him, with the uh, with the Toronto St. Pat's was was the first uh, was the first guy to re- to have all three in a game, and so they said he was the first guy to have a Gordy Howe hat trick. <laughs> Gordy wasn't even born, but he was the first guy historically to have a goal. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found really interesting. I'm like, you know, that term would have come in like late in the the history of hockey. Um, yeah, you know, nobody I'd- called it that. Even, you know, right through Gordy's not. career or even after. Yeah. Nobody referred to it until Gordy started. You know, I'll tell you when it started. When he went back and had that 46-second shift of the Detroit Vipers yeah. in 1997. That's really I was playing when that. they started talking about a Gordy Howe hat trick. I mean, it had a little bit of play before then, but very, very little. I don't remember it until then. Yeah. yeah. Nobody was making any. And that's the other thing I tell people all the time. If you look right now statistically in the NHL, they say Rick Tockett's got the most at 18. Brandon Shanahan is second at 17. Then some guy supposedly went back. I haven't done this, but allegedly some guy went back, went through a bunch of the summaries, late 50s, early 60s, and said Stan Makita actually had more than 20. I don't know. I I didn't do the research myself on it, but this is what he said. I said, well, they're not recognizing Stan for having that. And he said, well, I checked the summaries and I said, well, someone's going to, you know, so that, so there's that. And then I tell people all the time, and this goes back to what you said earlier about Eddie Shore talking about that incident with the five altercations. That's where I'm more, as as I call it now, he had five altercations and, and that's legit. But what happened with Gordy Howe, he came in in 1946. He fought the world. Okay. He fought the world and there were bench clears routinely in the NHL in those days. And all the NHL refs would do is they would penalize the original fighters. 
Everybody else got a freebie, man. You could tee yeah. off on 10 guys. You weren't going to get even so much as a roughing minor. Yeah. And Gordy Howe fought in every single solitary bench clear, so much so, and this is, this is a well-known and documented story. After his fourth year in the NHL, conclusion of 1950, he suffered the bad head injury, got, yeah. got, had the collision with Ted Kennedy, Detroit wins the Stanley Cup. They're starting the 50-51 season. This is going to be the start of his fifth year in the NHL. And Jack Adams calls him in the office. And he called Gordy Big Fella all the time. That was his nickname for him. And he said, okay, Big Fella, you know, you've got the clean bill of health medically here. You're good to go. We're defending cup champs. We're looking forward to the season. Listen, Gordy, we know you can fight. We know you can fight. We've seen that the last four years. How about this year you try and stay out of the box a little bit? What do you think? Gordy says, okay, Mr. Adams. He took everything to heart, no matter what you told him. He was so coachable. The next four years, Gordy led the league in scoring every year. Wow. The next four years. And did he still fight? Yeah. But when I tell people, I say, Gordy Howe only had two official Gordy Howe hat tricks. Well, no. First of all, A, that's factually incorrect. He had three because his last one came in 68 against the Oakland Seals when he fought Wally Boyer, and he beat the shit out of him so bad, Gordy got the only major. Boyer got five, got nothing, didn't get a penalty. So he actually had three, because he got a goal assist that game. That's number one. Number two is if you actually were able to be there those days in the late 40s, he probably had seasons of eight to ten, because he was fighting all the time. All the time. Interesting. And, and it just didn't, didn't, it wasn't getting registered as a five minute major, Terry, because he was coming off the ice in a brawl, licking his lips, going, Who's next, baby? Because we're going. And nothing. And, yeah. And that's the way it was. I always wondered that. I thought, I, I thought something to that. I said, Gordy Howe playing all those games and he got all kinds of goals, assists, and we all know he fought and threw the elbows. And it doesn't really make sense that he had such no. low numbers when it came to Gordy Howe tricks. Yeah. Um, Pierre Palas, tell us a little bit about him because he's an underrated player in history. Like his name yeah. keeps coming up. You brought him up when we had dinner again a couple of years ago and I looked into it. I said, wow, like an underappreciated player. Uh, he gave me one of the greatest quotes. I'll tell you, um, the list of guys that I've interviewed, like I said, I interviewed King Clancy and Foster Hewitt in 83. I interviewed Rocket Richard in 89. And I inter- one of the greatest interviews I ever did was with Peter Stashney. And another one I would put right up there is with Pierre Pilat. And I was on stage at the Rex Steimers Arena in St. Catharines, Ontario, in front of 700 people with Ronnie Ellis, Eddie Shack, and Pierre Pilat. And I was doing a hot stove with all three of them. And I said to Pierre, I said, yeah, man, you're a three-time Norris Trophy winner, Stanley Cup winner with Chicago. You're, you're, you're the best defenseman in the NHL. You led the league in penalty minutes one year. I said, Pierre, like, how did you judge? How did you find the line to know, like, what was your, what was your line in the, in, on the ice where you would say, okay, I'm going tonight physically or uh, tonight they need me to score or whatever. And he didn't even miss a beat. And he says, Liam, every single game I played, I tried to put somebody on a stretcher. (laughs) He said that in front of 700 people at the Rex Steimers Arena 
And like everybody's jaw just dropped. You could hear a pin drop. I'm waiting for him to crack a joke or something. He was dead serious. That was the way he played. That's what, see, that's part of what made him so good. What made him so good. I'll tell you, I did, I did a bunch of gigs with him. We did a gig at Royal Military College. I'm a big, big, big supporter of the yeah. military, yeah. Canadian military, past and present. And we did a gig at the military co college, me and Pierre. We were there with the Patric Patricia's Pots. They, they were, uh, anyways, the whole story from that night. But I was there with Pierre. I brought that up again. And he said, so he could say it again. He knew then that was a setup. But the one at Rex Dimers was not a setup. I was not expecting it. And, and then, he, then he expanded on that and just went to how the game was played. And when he broke in in the mid-50s, and he's going against Fernie Flamin, Jerry Topazzini, Gordy Howe, Ted Lindsay, Rocket Richard, Butch Bouchard. He's naming off the guys. Said, Liam, every team had three or four guys that would gladly put your head on a platter and say, send you back to, to where you came from. And didn't give a sweet goddamn if they ever saw you again. Too bad, kid. You're not tough enough. You had to yeah. prove it every single Tough man's game yeah. then, boy. You had to prove it. You know, that's why these gutless pukes today that comment on hockey don't know a thing. They get all upset if someone throws a dirty look or, and they don't know. <laughs> Liam, Liam. <laughs> Liam, no one. Sorry to cut you off. I love how just recently, and I really did. I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought you were done. Um, no, it's all good, buddy. I get like, going sometimes. The... Say, let's just say what just happened with Tom Wilson, okay? So rather than yeah. just admit that hockey's physical and if everybody had, like, I think he changed the game. Ranger guys got, got fired that day. I mean, say what you want, but I said to people, like, you can either ask Washington not to have him in the lineup. I don't know if, or, or, and I'm not saying we got to go to have one person going around that can't skate, but it, it's effective. Milan Lucic is having his best year in at least a few I find yeah. there is so, and, and and yet the same people on there. I won't name them, but they're on Twitter, and a lot of them are people that I know pretty well, and like are, outside of that are friends are, in in a way. And I'm going, don't you see what's happening? And and they'll, but they'll rave about awesome Matthews forty and Marner's having an awesome. Well, what did, what did Toronto do? God, hmm, what have Toronto done different than every? Hmm, who did they bring in? <laughs> right, even Thornton is throwing down. Bring, I know the game has changed. If Thornton comes in as a tough guy or one of kind I of, know, that, I know, I know. But but he is, and Simmons is there, right? You got guys of Felino come in. They're tougher. Connor McDavid. Yeah. Right, he got a hundred points. I know. I, now we're getting. He's starting to. Get, the numbers are creeping up. Almost two points a game. People say it'll never happen again. Okay, but what's happening with Edmonton though? What did Darnell Nurse, Stack Cassian? What happened since the yeah. first time? Like I, no one. You know what? It's always been there. It's physical, and yeah. I think fighting will always be there. You could give it a five-game suspension. If if the fight happens in the NBA, sure, it's only a game. If you get in yeah. football and make a foodie, you might just get thrown out. You're gonna break your hand. It's just. No one are willing to fight. It's just a different game. There, there, there's it's fast in our sport. Yeah. There's boards. There's a weapon, and there's a respect that's not in the other sports. Where if I if I fight, no one is ever going to get in a two on one unless it's a bench clearing brawl in the seventies. But we've gotten rid of that uh, yeah. as far as cheap shots. But if one breaks out and if someone throws at a guy in baseball, now you got no you know no gear on. You got a hundred five mile an hour fastball coming at you. That's dangerous enough if you want. I mean, I wouldn't care, but now you're, you, you, you charge the mound. Now people are stepping on fingers. They're pulling here. It's sissy. It's, a, you know, the odd guy like Nolan Ryan throws down. But even then, it's, it's one for, it, 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 you know, it's one for all. You got to look yeah. out. In hockey, there's yeah. a respect. You know, I'm, go, I'm looking at it going, 
you could give 20 games. If I played on the Rangers, if I was a kid on the Rangers and I got brought up for that last game against Washington after yeah. the Wilson, you could say 20 games. I don't care what you say. I'm going to go yeah. nuts. I'm going to fight a guy because yeah. I got to prove a point. I'm going to be a king in New York, and Wilson is at least going to get the message. Now, unless you wanted to get it to chopping everybody, but it's going to yeah. be physical. So pick your poison. You want to cross check yeah. in the teeth, or do you want to stand yeah. up and go? Yeah. Um, right. But but Matt Matthews is doing so well. I, I know. I know because he has more space, people, because he yeah. has more space. So exactly. Right. Um, exactly. Sorry to rant, but I just find it funny. No, no. Hey, listen, man, I started it going there and glad you picked it up. And, and you're so right. And Pierre Plot played that way. He had to in that era. And that's why he was the Hall of Famer that he was. I mean, this, this is a guy that was, I mean, after Doug Harvey's excellence started to come down, Pierre Pilat was a guy that carried the mantle as a defenseman. I know Harry Howell and Jacques LaPerriere won Norris trophies in there before Bobby started his run, but Pierre was the guy. And, and, he, was, and he was also a penalty minute leader. So, you know, I mean, you, you have to acknowledge, and I, I, listen, that's what he said to me in front of all those people all those years ago in St. Catharines, Ontario, and I'll never forget it. I think it's one of the greatest quotes I've ever been given by any player, and he's a Hall of Famer. I love so it. I put a lot of stock in it. I absolutely love it. And before we go further, I'm not saying we need bench-clearing brawls every game either. I'm, I'm just saying that I don't think you're ever really going to get rid of it. it, it <laughs> uh, a guy in Tri-Cities, I went back to drop a puck a couple years ago, and a fan, again, he was new into hockey, fairly, and he just said, I keep hearing you talk about it. But he goes, can I cross-check someone in the face in hockey? I said, no. He goes, can I trip you on a breakaway? I said, no, obviously not. What are you getting at? He goes, you can't fight either. It's a penalty. He said, it's just what, you're, what you guys are talking about is how much of a penalty it's going to be. But people talk about fighting in hockey like you're allowed to do it. He said, you're not allowed to do it. It's just right. it happens more. And I was like, yeah, that's a yeah. good point. Right Now, I, I think... You know, you don't want danger out there either. It was getting to a point in the 70s. It was getting crazy. I'm glad it happened, right? It's, it's good to look back on. And Bobby Clark came out of it. And, and Gretzky and guys came out of it that, you know, it was to each their own. We are evolving and hockey's going in a nice little direction. But I just don't think you're ever going to get it out of there. What do you think was the best team ever? I'm asking a Montreal Canadiens fan. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you're going to say one of the Habs teams. Which ones and why do you think? Yeah. Yeah, well, 77 Habs, Terry, for sure. I mean, eight losses, uh, 60 wins, 12 ties, 387 goals for, I believe it was, 171 goals against. And I, I think that team, to me, I mean, it, it's probably a 1-1A and a one a with them and one of the Oilers squads from the mid-'80s. Where the Oilers had the offense, they had four 400-goal seasons in the mid-'80s on those Gretzky-led teams before – the Paul Coffey trade, he was sort of the first piece of the puzzle to go. And I just don't – I think Dryden was a little better than Grant Fuhr. I think Montreal's defense was better than theirs all day. I don't think there's any doubt about that, led by the big three. And if you got Lafleur, Shutt, and Pete Mahovlich, and then Lemaire and Yvonne Cornwayer, uh, there's your top five players. And I think they match up. Other Gretzky and Messier are ahead. But and Curry, but I think they match up depth wise. Montreal's fourth line was Rajbrow, Tremblay, and Lambert, and they scored 20 or 30 goals. Their fourth line, their penalty killers were Doug Jarvis and Bob Ganey. They started the Frank Selke trophy for Bob Ganey. Doug Jarvis played 964 consecutive games. They, they, I think, were had more depth and the scoring they'd be behind 
but they had better goaltending and better defense and good defense wins. 77 Hobbs to me are the greatest single team. Having said that, just to finish one quick addendum, the Stanley Cup winning team with the most Hall of Famers on it are the 73 Montreal Canadiens. They had 11, 11 players on that team. <clears throat> Yvonne Cornway says it best. He says we had the, the last of the old guard sort of and, and the new guard coming in with Lafleur, Shot, and Robinson. And, and then you had the, the, the carryovers there with Henri Richard and Jacques LaPerriere and Frank Mahovlich were all Hall of Famers well, on that team as well. So What I, what I think is amazing, because you think of Montreal and you think of the flying Frenchman and you think of the finesse. And again, I don't want to beat a dead horse here with the physicality, because my favorite players to watch now would be Marner, Matthews, Kane. I love watching the McDavid's obvious. Um, sure. You know, but the physicality is there. So the Broad Street Bullies, like the Canadians of the late 70s, they knocked them, you know, they were the king of the castle, the Philadelphia Flyers. What defined them was toughness. So this yeah. flying Frenchman teams that, uh, that, that come in, they had to beat the Philadelphia Flyers, and people underrate how tough they were because they were so good. And I don't mean dropping your gloves tough, although in Larry Robinson's case, I could say that. And, and maybe yeah. even a few more, but he stands out because he stood up to Schultz so much. But team tough, I don't care who you are. Who can I think of as the epitome of speed and Von Cormier? But you, you can't play on the ice with those players and be successful if you're at all a... No, not frail, but you're timid. You can't be timid and play. So they all played, man, and they all played hard, even the fast guys. So I, I think I might be with you in that they had to be good, but they just had to be not only tough, but they had to beat the toughest team ever. And, and they did it. Yeah. And, and that's why I think I would go with the late 70s. I, I, didn't, I don't know 76 to 77 because 76 would have been the first one they won, right? They won in 76, and I just say 77 because it was they, – they also won the final four straight, and, and, and their record, regular season record was better. I think that's the only reason I would take them over 76. And I, I think, you know, you're splitting hairs there, really, if, that, if it's coming down, say, between those two, 76 or 77. The Oilers would probably say the same. Fans of the Oilers would say, well, is it the 85 team or the 87? You know, I mean, yeah. take your pick. It's – the 85 team is kind of generally regarded as probably the one. So that's there. And look, you go down the line and obviously look at other dynasties, the late forties, Toronto Maple Leafs, the early fifties, Detroit Red Wings. What did they all have? You know, they all had toughness, Terry. Like they all had toughness in, in that era. You want to know what changed it for Montreal and Philly? Well, it started with, with Schultz and Robinson. That fight happened in 74. That was February 17th, 1974. The Flyers hadn't won their first cup yet. Uh, so they didn't have to play Montreal in the playoffs in 74, 75. And by then, by 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 what by the start of the 75, 76 season, an exhibition game in Philadelphia, Scotty Bowman, head coach of the Montreal Canadiens, he dressed the toughest lineup that he could possibly dress for that game. He brought up all the guys from the American Hockey League. Yeah. He dressed Robinson. He had Chartres. He had Pierre Bouchard. He had everybody. And they, they, did, they didn't go down there to win that game. They went down there to brawl. And that game actually was not finished. Bruce Hood was the referee. He called it with three minutes to go. There was virtually no players left. Everybody had been kicked wow. out. Wow, interesting. And, and, um, and people point to that game. 
where the Montreal Canadiens had made a definitive statement against the Flyers. And there is a lot about it online. You can go online and find the reports from the reporters that flew home with the Montreal Canadiens who were celebrating on the plane, kind of like almost like they'd won a Stanley Cup because they all they didn't win every fight. Like Serge Savard yeah. fought, and he got filled in pretty good that night. But but they won the majority of the fights. Larry Robinson destroyed Don Seleski, destroyed him. And and Pierre Bouchard fought Dave Schultz. Everybody was gone. And uh, and the game was not completed. Very, 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 very rare. Exhibition or, or otherwise. Yeah, no, geez, I've never you heard of that. count them on one hand, going back to 1917, that a game wasn't completed. And in this case here, it was for brawling in an exhibition game. And uh, that was a big, big moment. By the time they met in the finals in 76, no, there was only one fight. This is the Broad Street Bullies. The height of the Broad Street Bullies. Two-time defending Stanley Cup champion. They're in the final for the third year in a row. And they lost to Montreal four straight. And there was only one fight. Mario Tremblay and Moose DuPont. They were the only guys to fight in that round, in that playoffs. And if you, if anybody watches it on Classics, you'll see every single whistle. The bullies come flying in, and so does Larry Robinson, and they're all looking for a spot, man. I think that fan's waving to me up there. Nobody wanted to make eye contact with Larry. Interesting. And and uh, that's that's why Montreal won that seventy six. It, it really. They, they, go, they go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. to Reggie Leach. He got 19 playoff goals that year. I got no problem with that. I've worked with Reggie. He's such a super guy. But you could have equally given it to Larry Robinson because he's really why that Montreal Canadiens won the Cup. I find it easier to see. Like, at first, even going back now, you can watch games in the 60s starting to go into the 50s that they add some color and they do the production a little bit better because when it's in black and white I don't think people give it as much credit and when it's in imagine like for for guys like what we're saying about Cyclone Taylor Joe Malone Sprague Claycorn you literally won't you know you you, you can't watch them and it, I, 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 at least some of the guys we're talking about might you, you know that they might get lost in time a little bit but it's always there for you to look up and watch and I find I just saw a game uh, Chicago Montreal, 1967, and it's color. And I went, whoa, you're really seeing how good these guys were, right? Before that, but you see like, oh, no wonder. Hull's wrists, you can see he goes to take a face off. I'm like, no wonder he could shoot it. His his wrists are bigger than my my bicep, and I'm really not exaggerating. People, it's, it's it's a YouTube click away. Just go on there and check it out. There's all kinds of... Avenues. I find that's the easiest because everything ends up there. But uh, yeah, that's wild. Who do you think? Then who is your favorite player ever? Well, Eva. Eva okay. Hornoye. Yeah. Ivan's your favorite player. Interesting. Yeah. I know you alluded to it. I didn't realize he was your number one. Wow. The that, number that... one guy. The, the the first name I ever remember hearing on TV in the mid '60s. Young boy. Only could watch a few minutes. The games would come on at 8:30 Eastern time. And the first period would be half over. I, I'd have to go to bed almost immediately. And I remember hearing John Bellavo and Henri Richard's name, and I kind of focused on Richard. But by the time, a couple years later, when Dad would let me, then they moved the start times on TV to 8 o'clock Eastern, and, and um, I could start watching the whole first period, in some cases, too. I was 10 before they let me watch the whole game. And uh, I just gravitated to Cornway. He was so fast, and of course, he was very good. 
and uh, uh, you know he's on my favorite team. And so every team I was on, I wanted 12. I'm a left shot. I wanted to play the right wing like him. The coach would say, no, Liam, get over on the left wing. and go, coach, Cornelier's right wing. I got to play right wing like Yvonne Cornelier. No, Liam. But he was he was my my favorite player of all time. And, I mean, it's it's just him and then the rest, which starts with Lafleur, but, I mean, and Larry. But uh, but Yvonne, number one all time. Uh, interesting. So I don't have many more questions. I do you, we've gone way over. Am I take? Am I, I'm cutting into your golf time or something, aren't I? I can't golf in Ontario, buddy. Oh God, yeah, you're the only place on the planet. I don't. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh at, at anything to do with COVID, but I need a good laugh, and uh, you know, I don't. So I'm as I sit here smirking. I, I really don't mean to underestimate the people that are going through a real hard time and everything. I just, I know it's just been so taxing on everybody. It really has. Finally, it's opening up. We've had it pretty good over here, Liam. Like we, we've had like half capacity shit and everything, but once it's taken care of, we wait a month. All you got to do, right? How are people getting here? Boat or plane, right? Everybody else should be good after two weeks. So shut those fucking things down and we're all right. And that's it. And we've been, we've sailed through. We had twice, twice that we were done for like a month and a half. But I during know. all this, but I look up there and, you know, Ontario has been back and forth. It's like a roller coaster. But I listen to uh, Overdrive and Hockey Central and try to all day. Everybody is complaining. I said, oh, they can't even golf. Like, Jesus. Hasn't it been proven that you can golf and not? But anyway. Um, okay. So I just got some rapid fire randoms here for you. Okay. All right. So here we go. Rapid fire randoms. If you could be a movie villain, who would it be? It doesn't have to be a superhero movie villain. It's just any movie villain. It could be a, a Harry Harvey Keitel, the bad lieutenant. It could be Darth Vader. It could be anybody. A villain. Anybody. A villain. Um, I would probably be, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Bane from Batman. Ah. I think it was Tom Hardy, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Played that role. Well, that takes care of my fourth question. I bet you. Anyway, (laughs) keep going. (laughs) Well, I'm just trying to think real quick off the top of my head, but uh, um, because I don't often think of it from a villain point of view, but I tell you what, I think he had to be considered maybe the toughest villain. So I like my toughness. So I go with him. And you know what? He had to be somewhat of an intellect to be Batman. Because Batman, you know, he's a smart dude. If anything, Batman is always in every rendition of Batman. He's a smart dude, and it always takes. He got him at the end. He got him at the end. But if you if if you if you look at it, Bane was the guy who got out of that pit. He's the kid who got out of that pit. Good, good, uh, good answer. uh, So I, I, I think I would pick him. So then, put these Toms in order. This is the question I was alluding to. Tom Hanks. Tom Wilson in your favorite order. Tom Hanks, Tom Wilson, Tom Hardy, Tom Cruise, and Thomas Edison. Well, uh, Tom Hardy would be number one for me because he played one of my favorite characters in any movie ever. And in fact, the book I just wrote on Goldie Goldthorpe, uh, the few producers that I have talked to about it as I continue to struggle to write the screenplay is I said, I say to people all the time, have you ever seen a movie called Lawless? And Tom Hardy was in it. I believe it came out in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a true story, Terry. And it's from the Prohibition era. 
and it's a family. Their, their last name is Bondurant. Yeah. And that's that's their real name too. And Tom Hardy plays one of the brothers. And he was the toughest. He was fearless. He took care of everybody. You didn't screw with this guy. And I fell in love with that movie and that character. He was unbeatable and unkillable. And I said, that's Goldie. This is Goldie. He's, this is what he's going to be in my screenplay is Tom Hardy's character in the movie Lawless. So he would be my number one Tom. I tell you, I'm a big Tom Hanks fan, too. Uh, I love his work. Uh, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, I've had veterans. I've spoken so many. They've said it's the most realistic. And, and uh, everything else he's done, he'd be right up there, man. Thomas Edison, well, can't deny that. That's yeah, for sure. I know. I love, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan too, and he lived here in Ottawa in in the late '60s. So, <laughs> gotta gotta give it up for that. But Tom Hardy's number one for sure. Fantastic. That's a great answer. That's a really well thought out answer. Sometimes people just list them off. Um, what's the weirdest name you've ever heard? Now I'll tell you where I'm going. So the weirdest name, I went out on a. Actually, my buddy did. Miloslav Guerin played with uh, Habs Pro Prospect in Fredericton. And we went out on a double date, and his girl was named Letha, L-E-E-T-H-A. But I thought she was saying Lisa, but she had a lisp. So I, I came, right. she, when she introduced her, she said, hi, I'm Letha. And I was ordering popcorn, and everyone, I'm like, yeah, Lisa. Le Terry, it's not Lisa, it's Letha. I'm like, no, I, clearly, like, no one's, who would name someone Letha? It's, it's like calling yeah, really. someone, would I, would I name someone Stephen? You know, but, but anyway, I just thought, I said, oh, that's bad luck. I, I, I got to be honest. That's, that's the, the worst name I've ever heard in my life. Would you, well, I don't know why I asked you this, but I said, you've met a lot of people. I've met a lot of people. And, and I, so I guess I'd come up with two weirdest, weirdest, sorry. I shouldn't say well, worst, weirdest. There's, there's two NHL players who have had their names changed by broadcasters for to make it easier to broadcast which is unknown to a lot of people yeah and one of the guys the first guy to have it happen his name was ennio sclizzi really e-n-i-o sclizzi s-c-l-i and a bunch of z's and a bunch of i's to end it i've heard ennio i've never heard sclizzi before they changed his name to jim ennio and really Sclizzi, yeah Come and on, what year is this? In the 40s. Oh, I was going to say, it had to be like... Yeah, so I, I didn't meet either of these guys that, that had this happen. The other guy was Steve Wachowski, and they they changed his name to Steve Wachy. So those ones sort of tie into the NHL a little bit, but I didn't meet them. But for guys that I met, I got a... That's a... No, it didn't have to be who you met. I just figured okay. you're, you're well-traveled. I figured it might be a hockey name. That, that was pretty good. I figured yeah. it, it might be a hockey name. I was just thinking of that story myself. And again, I lost my notes because they're in the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what superpower would you want? There's, there's a lot. Well, you know, you, 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 we've already talked about Sprague Claghorn. Like, I've never heard the name Sprague <laughs> ever before or no, since. And, and when you read about the guy's career, it, it actually seems so appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you, you go down to some of the names from back in those days. Now, so many of them were nicknames, even of their given names. But uh, you, you can, if you, people look back in the in the in the twenties and thirties, 
There's some incredible names. In there's hockey, more. There's so more I, nicknames back then too. You just you mentioned Jimmy Pie Face McKenzie. That yeah. it, it ended after that. Like in my mind, it, there there were, there are still nicknames, and there were. But the further you go back, people are either named by their nickname, like some right. some prints that you read from back then. It says Rocket Richard, not Maurice. You know. I know. And it's such a part of the lexicon that you're like, oh, oh, yeah, it is it Maurice Richard. But, you know, and all kinds. The pocket rocket, you go way back, all of them. The pocket rocket and their other brother, Claude, was called the vest pocket. And, and he, he, played, uh, he played junior A, and, and his name was Claude Richard. And he was, you know, he was a hell of a player to play major junior A, even that's good level hockey. But he wasn't good enough to make it to the NHL, but they used to spun off rocket was, nicknames. Like, was Cyclone Taylor's name really Cyclone? It was Fred, Fred Taylor. Really? So, See, there you go. Yeah. People were just, it was just common. Like, if you think about Cyclone, I, there's one. I asked that question, but really, I didn't yeah. have that queued up. I didn't even think about it. It, it just, yeah, because Fred we've Taylor, said the name Fred, so Fred much Taylor. and it's so long ago that you don't think, sure. but if someone now was named Cyclone, I'd go, geez, what, what are you, well, you look going at, under look a tornado? Of the, some of the more popular ones from the 70s and 80s. Uh, what everybody calls Butch Goring, Butch. Yeah. Like who? Who even knows his real name? It's Robert. You know. I didn't know or, that. I uh, thought it was Butch. People hear hear Turk Broda all the time. Well, his real name is is Walter. What about Chico Mackey, a very famous name in hockey in the 1970s? Well, his real name was Ron. Ron Chico Mackey. Uh, Walter Turk Broda. Uh, they they all got nicknames for different Chico yeah. Mackey. I played with Walter Turk Broda's nephew in Red Deer, Mike Broda. There you um, go. Yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting. If you were to give up, or no, what superpower would you want if you could have one superpower? Wow. Uh, I would say, um, I guess most people probably say fly, right? The ability to fly. Some I people say, I, some people, creeps say invisibility. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be that'd be pretty. I'd say for me, it'd either be flying or give me uh, give me the strength. You know, the 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 the, top, the Superman type strength, so you could be the strongest guy. I guess you'd never, you know, it'd be that or flying. I guess for me, Terry, it'd be one of the two. I mean, you'd go down the line, say a bunch of other things, X-ray vision or invisibility or uh, you know some of the other stuff. But uh, I think. Um, Oh, flying would be uh, would would be pretty cool. I think so. It'd be tough. No. It'd be tough to do anything to beat flying as a human being. Yeah, it would yeah. be tough. You got to give up one of the following: beer, golf, hockey, coffee. Oh, coffee. Okay. <laughs> I thought that would be the answer, but I wasn't sure. Uh, if you could have a time machine, where would you go? Doesn't have to be the past. Could be anywhere. Could be, and I mean. Yeah, I'm not, that's not a hockey question, although it might be a hockey answer. But anywhere from, you know, the Big Bang to wherever you think we're going to end up. Well, boy, I mean, from a personal point of view, uh, time machine, I'd uh, probably uh, go back so I could talk to my dad one more time. That'd probably Ooh, be the deep. first thing I would, I would think of would be uh, he's been gone 25 years, so that'd be probably the – First thing I would think of, uh, my first hero, um, from a hockey perspective. I mean, I I I'd want to be in the forum in um, in March of '52, Game Seven, semifinals, Montreal, Boston, when Rocket Richard scored what people say is the greatest goal in hockey history. I I'd, I'd want to be in the forum that night. Dick Irvin was there. He's told me about it. 
he's described it to me. There's no video of it. But if I could pick one moment in hockey uh, to be at that I didn't see, it would be that one. Because if I could go back to any moment that I actually saw, I would go back to uh, Luzinski Ice Palace Thursday, September 28, 72, when Henderson scored. And, and to be one of 3,000 Canadians in that rink oh. would be my number one choice above all for yeah. hockey. But from what I didn't see would be Rocket Richard's game winner against Boston semifinal 52. God damn it, Liam, your answers are good. Fuck, this is just like a fun little quick round, and your answers are blowing me away. Okay, last question. Um, if you could pick an all-star team pre-1950, give us who would be, be, who, be on it. Okay, pre-1950? Well, you haven't hit Howe in his prime, so I'm taking uh, Rocket Richard on the right wing. I'm going to take um, Babe Siebert on the left wing. I'm going to take Howie Morenz at center. I'm going to take Eddie Shore as one of my defensemen. And I'm going to take King Clancy as my other defenseman. And my goaltender pre-1950, I'm going to take um, I'm going to take Bill Dernan. Bill Dernan all day. That's a little bit heavy towards the Habs, three of them. Um, but well. I think uh, going very quickly now, I just restricted that to NHL. So I didn't go back, but I don't think I would change it too much, Terry, to be honest. I mean, the Rockets there for sure. I think Howie Morenz is there for sure. They're locks. Left wing, you can get into some discussion. Maybe you're looking at a Harvey Jackson. I'd go Siebert just because he was tough as nails and he fought the world that he could score as well, which I loved. Eddie Shore is there all day. And and King Clancy, I think uh, I think that's a that's a fair one, but you could certainly you could certainly look at guys like Trapper Coulter or, or, or some other guys. Uh, uh, but I, I'm, I'm comfortable with my pick of King Clancy and Bill Dernan as well. They'd be my top uh, top six guys. That is awesome. So I always uh, leave my interview with some song lyrics. This one comes from Van Morrison. We were born before the wind, also younger than the sun, near the Bonnie Boat was one as we sailed into the mystic. Hark now, hear the sailors cry, smell the sea, feel the sky. Let your soul and spirit fly into the mystic. The reason I bring it up is because people think that's about a girl, but according to Van Morrison, I believe it's about a spiritual companion. And I feel that you're on a spiritual journey. We've never talked about religion or anything, but you're passionate about the past. Like I, like I said at the beginning, some people link themselves with one time. They might like the 50s. They might like the style. And they say, I was born in the wrong era. I don't know. I feel like you're omnipresent. I feel like you're there. You're representing Cyclone Taylor and Joe Malone in 1893 and everything that was the past. But you're also representing the future because you're a big time fan and you still know exactly. You have your finger on the pulse. Your books are still coming out. Uh, check them out soon, folks. Uh, there's four, the most recent one, The Real Ogie. Um, and you are a genuine good person, and I feel positive karma when I'm talking with you. So that's why you're left with Into the Mystic. Not a bad song, by the way, by one of the best artists of all time, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so thank you very much for doing it. And um, I really, really hope to see you at some point. See you anyway at some point, but over here in Newfoundland would just be the cat's ass. If if we could share a beer at Green Sleeves, that might have been the bar you were talking about. Then uh, I'll uh, you know I look forward to the day that that can happen. So do I, Terry. I really do. I feel that uh, so much. Uh, 
of your passion. And I felt that today as well. And I've, I've always said there's one thing about me. If I'm nothing else, I think I'm a very passionate guy. And I tried to be that with you today too. I didn't, I don't really try. It's how I am. But thank you so much for having me. And uh, we will have that pint sometime, buddy. And That's I good. look forward to it. I, I really, really do. And, and thank you again. Me too, Liam. This has been Liam McGuire. Thank you again, my man. I look forward to seeing you. And you keep your head up and your stick down. I'll catch you on the rebound. All right, brother. Thank you. And there it is. Liam McGuire. Um, you know, I know that one went fairly long. And uh, for those that don't like that sort of thing, I apologize. But I'm kind of done apologizing for that, to be honest. I take that back because you can just press pause. If it was a radio show, I think I'd be more aware. But it's a podcast. So, you know, you can skip forward. You can pause. You can do whatever you want to do. But I think most of you will listen to um, will have listened to that whole interview. Because Liam is, and it could have gone on and on and on. As you see, the guy's memory and, well, his knowledge, like he said, he works on it, but he does have a good memory. He's being humble when he says he's got an average memory. But he, um, he's so interested and so passionate. And, you know, we could have gone through every year. I honestly could do a, a two-hour show on 1948 hockey with Liam and like in other words each year by year since 1893 to say that he knows every year like who won the cup I mean I guess that's something but you could remember that you know just really what a 140 130 odd years of, of memory but to, to remember, sorry, but but he, he goes deeper he doesn't just remember who won that year like it's he's cramming for an exam he can tell you, like, won all the awards, uh, you know, the, what the rules were, what was going on in the world at the time. I found it really interesting, things that don't show up on the stat sheet, like Eddie Shore's five fights. You go back and you look, and the same thing, yeah, with Cordy Howe. I mean, I'm watching YouTube, and I see all these brawls, and I'm going, how did those guys not get my mini penalty minutes? That just wasn't called. Uh, and uh, I said I wouldn't get into the fighting this week because I've been uh, – beaten a dead horse since the Tom Wilson thing. But to make it clear, okay, I don't think the game should be barbaric or anything else, but I, I just don't see how you're ever going to get fighting out of it. And the more you penalize it, it might turn into slashes or whatever, and I do think you fight fire with fire. I'm sorry. You don't have to have a bunch of goons running around. Just get a few people out there. The Nick Felino in Montreal. It's not like he's going to fight Tom Wilson, but if you have a team full of guys like that, right, maybe with a Lucic, if you can be... I. I, I just think you'd be better off. I think your stars are going to be protected, and you you do a lot without doing it. Like Zdeno Chara doesn't have to get in one fight to do his physical job with the Washington. He's just there. It's a physical presence. I mean, think about it. No wonder people don't like playing Washington. Jesus, they got Wilson and Chara and Ovechkin. People forget that part. I mean, he goes around hitting. Ovechkin is a six four two thirty or some shit. And not only that, I can go down every player. They got half their team is gritty. And uh, you don't want to see injuries, man. I don't want to see it either. I just don't – because of that, I don't think you're going to see the competitive nature taken out of people. And you can have all the social media and selfies and high fives and you want. But people are going to get pissed off. It's like in baseball. Who's that guy, Ozuna, who hits home runs now? And at first base, he takes a selfie, right, where he – does the pose that's his celebration and people say 
Well, you know, it's just baseball's going that way where, you know, pitchers aren't as pissed off anymore. That's great. There won't be as many injuries. But I'm telling you that competitive fire and nature is in an athlete and competitors of anything. It could be chess. At some point, someone's going to get pissed off. So it might not be every at bat, but there are players fewer and further between like Roger Clemens and like Nolan Ryan that Ozuna is going to do that to the wrong person and he's going to get a 100-mile-hour fastball right in the ear. And mark my words, that's going to happen. I, as a fan, doesn't bother me what he does. Didn't bother me when Joe, uh, Jose Bautista flipped the bat in Toronto five or six years ago. Great moment. It was a big home run. Of course, you're going to be excited. But someone might get upset. I, like I say, I, I didn't mind celebrating in hockey. I was, I was a spokesperson for it. I was like a representative. In the WHL, if you ask my years, ask the people that played during my years, um, they would probably say I did the most of it, but I knew a fight might be coming. I didn't do it not expecting to get a punch, you know. I, and, and I often, I wouldn't do it trying to rub it in either. I, I was pumped. The fans were there, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd really get behind that, and usually it was a goal that meant something. If not personally, then team-wise or whatever. And you know what? If it wasn't, then I knew. You'd come at me. But I knew I might have to throw down. So what I'm saying is that these guys that celebrate or whatever they do, it's, it's, it's great and it's passion. And I think fans love it. Just understand that you might get knuckles in the face. I don't care what sport it is. It just might happen, right? That's all I'm saying there. Um, the competitive nature is going to be in and a competitive person. And a lot of athletes... Uh, a lot of you listening in Canada. And uh, you know what? I'm going to start talking about some other teams. I get a lot of feedback. So if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're a fan in any other part of the world, notably the United States, because you have lots of teams down there, but uh, uh, because I'm about to talk about the Leafs and the Habs, so I got a few questions. I can't get into all of them. I'm, I'm busy today. And... Uh, yeah, I've got a lot to do, but uh, as far as the Leafs Habs, who's I get I get about ten of the same question. Basically, who do I think is going to win that series, and, and equally, who do I think is going to win Edmonton, Winnipeg? Well, the short answer is that I think Edmonton's going to beat Winnipeg, and Toronto's going to beat Montreal. Uh, Winnipeg, I had picked at the beginning of the season that might win the whole division, but the ass has fallen out of her there. I don't know what's happening. I don't think it's due to losing Line A, um, as many of you suggested to me. Uh, I think that's a good riddance. He seems to be, that guy's high maintenance and he seems to have a bit of an attitude. Prove me wrong, Patrick, but you didn't do much better in Columbus. Um, I believe he was benched one game too for some attitude thing. I wish him the best, I do. <laughs> I got no reason not to like him, but uh, he just rubs me the wrong way. So no, I don't think it's the fact that he's gone. Uh, you know, some teams peak different at, times than others i think it probably would have been just playing the same teams and you know edmonton and toronto and i suppose thinking that you're going to come in first losing and losing and losing to those teams it probably bothers you a little bit you get in a funk it's not a full season i don't know i'm trying to come up with reasons but they got a fantastic goalie and i still think they got one of the best teams in the league but you peak when you peak and edmonton to me are surging you could almost god like Say what you want, man. McDav McDavid and Dreisaitl are lights out. I think, though, 
um, that, you know, you, you, they play Toronto and you say, well, Matthews Marner, I, I, they got so much more than that, though. I think Toronto are deeper than they've been. And I joked about it earlier, but they are, they are tougher. Why do you think these guys are doing well, like Matthews and Marner? Because, and, you know, Nylander, but I'm just saying, people are celebrating the years these guys are having. Well, they're tougher than they've been in years, and they're team tough. That's why I said a few weeks ago, remember Wayne Simmons got in that tilt? A uh, guy on Vancouver that it doesn't fight much at all. It was his first or second fight in uh, 900 odd games. Um, Edler, and you know Simmons, bit, and it was that was a message more to his own team than to Vancouver, because Edler had hit uh, Hyman, I think, and put him out. But it was the end of a shift. I don't think Edler really meant to do it, but he's done it a few times, and he answered the bell. Hats off to Edler France in the bell, being, not being a fighter, but I'm just saying that that's, I looked at the Toronto bench, and they're pumped, and they see that, you know, we got people here to stick up for us. I can't believe I'm saying it about Joe Thornton. He's always been fairly gritty, but he's, you know, he's there, and he's a big guy, and he's, he's physical when he's out there. He knows his role is one of leadership, but also as toughness. I mean, he lost his mind the other night four or five times, uh, and going into the playoffs, uh, if you can keep that in check and just use it as intimidation, sky's the limit. I mentioned Felino. I'm not kidding. That guy will chase down a puck uh, anywhere in any building with any players. I mentioned Washington. He doesn't give a fuck, man. If they end up meeting them at any point, he'll go in the corner with Chara. That's what I mean. I just think they're they're real team tough. I don't think Edmonton aren't. I just think Toronto is a better team. I know I haven't brought up Montreal because I think Toronto's going to go through them like a knife through butter. Nothing against Montreal either, but, you know, they might get a game off them. I'd be, even be surprised. But they aren't Weber, Gallagher, Joanne, and Price out? Joanne, i got to be the most frustrating player to watch in, in all of sports to me. I mean, I don't. I wish him the best. He's out. Uh, I say that too much, but he is out, and, and I know it's personal reasons, and that could be anything from, I don't want to mention, but it could be a lot of things. So I do wish him the best, but when he's out on the ice, he just looks like the most timid player. Once in a while, he'll go on a Gila Fleur like Rush, and then you'll see him again in a week and a half. I, I just, he's the most frustrating player to watch. So the media counts him in that big four, but I, I really don't. I think that he's almost an advantage if you're in the playoffs to be playing against. But as far as, Gallagher, Price, and Weber. Yeah, I mean, you hope they're back. If they're not, it's four games, guys. I'm sorry. Um, I've been wrong before on Toronto, but I don't feel wrong this year. But hell, they haven't won two rounds in their existence for a reason, right? <laughs> but I do think they're going to be able to do a little better this year. And when Toronto meet Edmonton, if that happens... I would have said Toronto would have had a hard time against Winnipeg. But, again, I don't think it's going to be Winnipeg. Uh, and, of course, a goalie can get hot. And with Toronto, ooh, you got Anderson coming back, but do you even really want him there? And then Campbell has been lights out, but can that really last? And then they got Riddick, who let in the two games I saw. I mean, he wouldn't have stopped a beach ball. So if there's one worry about Toronto... It could be that, but I just think they're deeper than the other ones. I think this is Toronto's year that they're going to find themselves in the semifinal, in the conference final for the uh, for the Stanley Cup. 
That's what I think going in, guys. You're asking me because it's playoff pool time, and I picked accordingly. Wedgwood Cafe. Check it out. They're back on the go again. They're catering. They're they're open. Great food. Uh, Penny Posh. Women's Wear Reimagined. PennyPosh.com. Figure it out if you'd like a hoodie. And there's lots of... Uh, I think they're they're going online for 129. Danielle's got them on for 89. Uh, but uh, shoot me a, a message. TerryRyan2020 at gmail.com. And if you're interested, we'll work out a deal for you. What we've been anyway, just if you're interested, we'll work out a deal. They're unbelievable hoodies. Everybody who I've sent them to absolutely loves them. And uh, like I said, I'll throw in a book and a picture. If you'd like uh, just a book and a picture, same thing. Twenty-five bucks plus shipping. Most places you are in North America and the world. Shoot me a note, Terry Ryan, twenty twenty at gmail.com. I don't want to forget to say it this week. Uh, Tri-City Americans alumni, they've been great to me, okay? They've been great, and they've had a hard year uh, with no fans, every junior team. But, again, I played for Tri-City, and they reached out, and they said, you know, uh, we want to have you guys back. We, we, we can't because of what the, the COVID and all that stuff, and we, we want to, you know, continue a tradition of the alumni getting involved. And I also played for Red Deer, and I often mention Red Deer. Um, but... Uh, and so, do you know, if you're a hockey fan, go check out the Rebels merchandise. I'm not saying not to do that, but I know that the Tri-City Americans now, uh, they're, they're trying to get the alumni involved. And uh, I know as far as some programs that they have, it, 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 uh, it helps when you have deep pockets. And so I'm just, uh, not that I do, but just check out their store. It's an easy Google away. I forget the exact site. It's on Facebook. There's one on Facebook. Tri-City uh, not only alumni, just the Tri-City Team Store. Um, you can donate to the alumni program, but the Team Store, you know, go and, you know, spend a couple of hundred bucks, maybe buy some gifts. They got, well, I mean, I'm not kidding you. The jersey I wore in Tri-Cities is tough to come up with a nicer one. They are beautiful. And uh, even the new ones, they've always had a great, interesting jersey. So please, uh, and a lot of people ask me, they look at my Instagram, they ask me about that team with the American with the Eagle. Uh, it's the Tri-City Americans in Kennewick. So go on there and check out their stuff. Uh, TJ's Pub and Greensleeves, downtown, uptown. Check us out. The patio season is coming up. We're opening the patio in a week and a half. Right after this, I'm going down to work on it. So uh, that's where you'll see me this summer, TJ's Patio. Uh, what else? My good friend, Mike O'Neill, uh, one of the best athletes to ever come from the province uh, and well-rounded too. I uh, played high-level hockey and baseball, still plays baseball. Mike's in his late 40s now, and he, uh, he's got a clinic started, which we've needed here a long time, the M7. I believe it's called Baseball Clinic. He's off to Cornerbrook this weekend um, with my one of my guests, Darren Colburn, from a couple months ago. Darren's also a great, a great hockey player, but he's also a great baseball player. They're doing it together. But M7 are going to start traveling all over the island and putting off these baseball clinics, and I think it's been needed for a long time. There are, of course, I'm sure there must be other small ones out there. I just don't know of them. And Mike, being a good friend, I, I really hope this succeeds because baseball is starting to die off in a lot of smaller communities. Soccer took over, which I love as well, but you know, you'd like to see baseball stick around. So, M7, a step above uh, ball hockey. But Jeremy Bishop out in Cornerbrook. 
And Grand Falls has also started the same sort of thing, a league, and uh, so you can get some merchandise. So check that out at uh, a Step Above uh, on Facebook. Uh, step Above Ball Hockey, I believe it is. Thanks to all my listeners uh, for tuning in again this week for episode 52. Liam was a great guest, and uh, I probably will have him back at some point. Um, definitely will have him back. Uh, as you see, he's never-ending hockey knowledge. And uh, I wanted to get to one other thing before I left, because each week, each week I, I get messages, you know, and it's people that really identify with some of the things we talk about on here when it comes to mental health. And I've often said, you know, awareness is one thing and, and talk to somebody, but it doesn't have to be like you're born with it. I think people get confused and they're like, well, I've never been diagnosed. So, you know, and I, I or I don't have cerebral palsy or they'll come up with some problem that's diagnosed and I'm like no no it doesn't have to be obvious like that at all like or you know we're all human and we all have adversity and, and sometimes you know you you might just merely have a quick temper like myself um so when when things get down they, they really seem like they're down but just sit back relax have a sip of water reach out to somebody I think sometimes when I say reach out to somebody, you think I mean call a, a, a psychiatrist, which wouldn't be a bad thing. But if you're scared about that and you think there's some sort of stigma with that, uh, there's not. But if there, it, it, well, I guess to some people there might be. So, but I still think if you call a therapist or somebody or, or, or set up an appointment, it can't hurt. But I, it's not necessarily what I mean. I mean, reach out to a friend, right? Or, or a family member or whoever it might be. Someone close to you can identify it, I guarantee you. And, and if anybody that you can call a friend should be able to be there for you or you wouldn't be able to call them that. I don't want to beat a dead horse. I know I bring it up every week or two, but you know I get a lot of messages and a lot of people are going through a hard time. And a lot of people can identify when, when we talk about uh, mental health issues and anxiety and depression and all those things. It's normal people at this day and age more and more awareness. I think it's starting to be accepted by more and more people that it's common. But in any case, I wanted to say that before we leave. So thanks to my sponsors. Uh, thanks to my listeners. Thanks to Liam McGuire. And uh, we'll see you next week with another edition of Tales with TR. This has been a blast. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Liam McGuire. See you next week. Catch you on the rebound, folks. <laughs>